Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? It's Spooktober 1st, and you're listening to Waypoint Radio episode 431. And because it's Spooktober, that means I can finally announce that we're hand, you know, we decided Waypoint wants to cash in. On the new podcast, Gravy Train, recording this on National Podcast Day. So I'm wow. proud to announce this episode is the pilot episode of our Stephen King podcast, King Point. I'm your host, Patrick Clubbing, <laughs> and I'm joined by a couple of king sessives and our producer, Ricardo Contreras. Stephen who? Range Touch, uh, Strange Touch, <laughs> co-founder, Waypoint contributor, and co-host of some podcast called Just King Things. I don't know. You know, uh, Cameron Kunzelman. Hello. Oh no! Cam. I've been I, I I've been punked. I think <laughs> I, I, you. I believe this, this call is... wearing that trucker hat, and I was like, "Something's <laughs> going on." That's not that's not Patrick's thing. <gasps> this oh, is what they call to... a hostile takeover in the business world. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I thought about it. Uh, you know, we just wait till we get to the mailbag. I I, <laughs> I cracked to people that you should just send me Stephen King questions, and I let me tell you what I got. Um, <clears throat> A lot of Stephen King questions, so you know what? Just <laughs> people a know what a, they want. Yeah, uh, it's a, a crossover episode. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of, I would ask how you're doing, mm. but um, I don't know. Do you want to admit it publicly? Do you like? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna put the oven issues at the end of the pod. Y'all can listen to after the outro. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. Well, to my just... fucking oven woes. <laughs> right in. Um, I now have access to gamingadvice.com. Let us know. How you feel? I'm just gonna, you, you know, you, this is out of order in theory for the <laughs> listener, but just let me know your thoughts on putting plastic in the oven. Just generally speaking, your experiences <laughs> with it. <laughs> God damn! Just I just want I just want to know. I just want to know. Yeah. Um, the internet will weigh in as they always do. They will. They will. <laughs> you, that that much. That's that. And that's what we are sure of. I feel like we'll get some good yeah. stories of people making some. There was a uh, uh, when I was uh, younger, my parents' house was the house that was closest to a lot of the bus stops, and uh, I had all the video games. I was like that kid, and so it was just the house a lot of people hung out at, and that included like my brother and his friends. And um, wow, you even let your brother spend time at your house? Well, it was like That's separate wild. groups. Charitable. Separate group. I know, very nice of me. <laughs> but it was like two two different like uh, roaming. Uh, groups of like cats and dogs like we were in our mm-hmm. separate groups occasionally they would cross over to grab chips and soda from the garage fridge and to uh to play basketball on the hoop in the in the driveway but generally kept to our own own devices mm-hmm. am i so you're uh, saying there was some sort of uh scoops crew and some sort of hoops crew exactly 100 percent. see <laughs> scoops versus hoops this is cam the classic this story we, this is why we brought you on um <laughs> and what one of my brother's friends uh I came over. Um, I almost said his nickname, but I need to get to the story to explain the nickname. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I just say his name is Easy Mac. 
And the, ra- the reason uh, I wonder, was, I wonder how this could happen. I wonder what kind of uh, event could have occurred to incur mm-hmm. this nickname. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's like maybe he just loves mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. Very common for a young person to enjoy mac and cheese. I still enjoy Same. mac and cheese. I'm headed towards forty, and like you know what? Sometimes I have a peas and broccoli in it, spice it up a little bit. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm only doing that to tell myself I just like mac and cheese. It's cool. So you're yeah. well, hold on. The yeah. peas and the broccoli are spicing it up for you. It's not <laughs> that the mac and cheese is spicing up the peas, the peas and the broccoli. And the broccoli. For you. I, I guess I, I guess I mean by spice it up, it's uh, rationalized my way into a mac and cheese salad. Um, got, got it. Got it. Uh, is, is what is what I'm doing there. Very um, Chicago. Exactly. Well, then, then I would dice up like a deep dish pizza, like you know, get that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, so we're, one of my brother's uh, friends goes in. It was very common for people to make. These, you know, the easy macaroni and cheese, you know, where you just take the little circle cup, you uh, pour water in it and you put it in for a couple of minutes. Boom. You've got some Mm -hmm. surprisingly competent mac and cheese as a as a nice little snack. Well, there are problems if you put that in without water and you just put mac and cheese into the microwave and just zap it for for four (laughs) minutes. The result of that, I believe, is what they call a fire. Um, or at least an incredible <laughs> amount of smoke. Um, oh, no. Because <laughs> Easy Mac went in, t- tapped the you know the appropriate button amount or the time on, on the microwave. And yeah, the you know, Cutter, you, you the you kind uh, you mentioned uh, what would it be like to have a microwave. Well, you could do things like this. You know, oh, you God, could think yeah. I'm just making some Make Easy Mac fire cheese. faster this time. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, it was all noticed because all of a sudden smoke just started like billowing out of the kitchen. Like just an extra, extraordinary amount of smoke for one of those tiny little uh, cartons. Um, but uh, after that, we we always called them Easy Mac. Um, not so easy. Easy Mac was a, a common. We were very funny, you know, just really. Yeah, it's really a uh, bunch of com- uh, <laughs> regular yeah, comedians. You were hanging out, you and your crew, Rodney Dangerfield, Steve Mark, <laughs> uh, you know, all the greats <laughs> hanging out after school. Getting sodas. Exactly. Hey, Drinking you know, Surge. Well, well at, a, at a certain point, my mom had to put up a, a sign that said one one soda. I think we called it pop. We it was interchangeable. Mm-hmm. I know that people like that's like a regional thing, but I uh-huh. I grew up mostly call it, sometimes calling it soda pop, um, just mm-hmm. refusing to pick a side. Uh, what was it like to be uh, a teenager in 1955? Uh <laughs> I don't know. I, that's what I read Stephen King books for. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. To get that nostalgia feeling of your exactly. own childhood. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, which one? Not Pet Cemetery. Uh, what the, he's got a, what's the one that he, it's a, it's set back then. I can't remember. Stand By Me? Stand By Me. Yeah. The which I only recently watched for the first time over, over COVID. I'd, uh, I'd not seen that. It was one of those, there's a number of Stephen King or just movies in general mm-hmm. that I spent a COVID. Uh, my wife has a list. It's like movies. My husband should have seen, but why hasn't he? And it's just mm-hmm. basically if you were to make a list of your cultural osmosis films of like, oh, I've def, oh, I've absolutely seen that, and then you watch the first five minutes and realize, <laughs> no, never, never seen this movie in my life. I just know like the the big plot beats uh, because mm-hmm. they were they were popular. Um, but let's uh, one one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, Cam, was because you uh, reviewed Sable. For mm-hmm. us, um, about a week or so back, um, that is a game that I had been playing quite a bit of this past week. I know Kato has, well, I don't know if he's been playing it. He's been wandering the desert. And then when I've asked him specifics about playing it, he's mostly giving me a blank stare in response because it sounds like Look. he's just wandering the world. We went, we took different paths probably. Uh-huh. 
Mm-hmm. I've played seven hours of it. I don't know how big this game is. How how long did it... Did you finish? Is there an end to this game that's like... Well, it, I, isn't it, isn't it something you can choose to finish fairly quickly if you... Like, I've gotten the impression, and maybe I'm wrong about this, where, like... Yeah. You if when you collect you when you uh, collect three uh, badges, um, mm-hmm. you can turn it into a mask, and then the game gives a pop for a quest that's like, "Yo, you done with this quest? Like, you want to just like go home and uh, like f- finish off this whole little adventure you're on?" So it seems like you can, you know, pr- at least in like the first eight hours, I collected three of one thing, and then it was like, "Hey, you want to go home?" And it seems like at that point, I could just choose to be like, "This I have chosen to become <laughs> a merchant because that's the first set of badges I got." And I just don't really want to do this anymore. <laughs> just, I said what I did, but it seems like in theory remember. you could do that. I, I, you know, I played quite a bit more of it than than just after the first three. So I don't remember when the quest pop like kind of happens. But yeah, I mean, Sable broadly narratively is about someone who's like on, uh, you know, this kind of cultural pilgrimage in order to figure out what you do in your life. Right. So you grow up in a village and then you have to, at, you know, puberty or whatever. It's kind of unclear. The main character's name is Sable. It's a little unclear how old you are when that happens or whatever. But you go and you start this kind of pilgrimage. And, and like you're talking about, Patrick, the idea is that you pick a mask and that mask kind of determines your trade or it kind of determines the path that you go on. We can see the metaphors here, right? Like, you know, <laughs> the kind of person you end up being is the person who you are. Uh, and, you know, this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of the stuff you do produces you. And so, uh, so yeah, so you, you like, go out and you start engaging with all these different people and all these different kinds of jobs in this big science fiction, uh, I don't know, desert planet, I guess, mostly desert planet. And... Uh, Jakku, I believe, is the name of the planet. Um from mm, it God. just reminds me a lot of the force awakens God, like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> i was, was like damn like, thought that reference Jakku? would mean something to anyone yeah, and no. instead it's just like a complete silence no, no i guess we also all, yeah. after, i think it's because after the last <laughs> i was lost what? because i thought it was pronounced jakku and so i was like what's jakku <laughs> ja- Jaku- is it jakku i don't know no. Jaku? but my in my brain i feel like that's just the, the, the emphasis is on the end yeah <laughs> jakku uh, whatever moon uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that's like the, the deal. And so like, once you start getting masks, I, I think you can just trigger the end game. I, you know, I, I, I diddled around a little bit more than that, but, uh, well, yeah, I, I intend yeah. to, it was more just, I, I put my face into the mask oblivion. I put my f- mm-hmm. hand into a man's or a, a person. I don't, I'm not sure. A thing, <laughs> a, it, a, thing not, a thing's face. It's not even face. alive. Maybe there's some yeah. cool lore behind those. Um, uh, yeah, I put, I put my hand into the, into the beyond pulled out a mask and, and that's when, that's when it had popped for me. But no, I'm that I did that so early on that, I mean, I have three fourths of the map still to kind of discover I'm off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, at, I, uh, the reason this came up was cause I had asked Kato I'm off. I, I decided like one of the objectives I had, like took me to the Southwest corner of the map. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, all right, I'll just go. I'll just go that way. We'll just see what happens. And then I've, I've kind of come across not quite a sky like village, but it's these areas at the top of like, there's these giant, not dinosaur, like kaiju bones, basically mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the, like the size of these creatures are fucking un- enormous. They are not in the game as far as I know, or at least I've not come across them, but I have, I have the bones of these creatures are just, I mean like Godzilla sized. And I saw those. I was like, well, I want to, those are big. Like, how do I get to those? And it required me like climbing up like a bunch of uh, weird spots to get up there. And I found this uh, 
kind of like a group of I guess everyone's kind of nomadic in in Sable in general. It's kind of like the whole vibe, I guess, unless you live in the handful of kind of like cities. Um, but uh, they got like sky boats. And I was like, you can buy some parts. He's like, Kyle, can I build a sky boat? He's like, what, are you, what the what hell are you, are you talking about? And I sent him a couple screenshots. He's like, I have no idea where you are. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> the, bottom right of, the bottom right of my map still doesn't have map. Right, like I've, mm-hmm. I've, I spent a lot of time in the city. Have you, have you been to the city, the city? I've been to the the city in the northwest. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Is that the city? Mm-hmm. Uh, I like, just like it ECC feels like such like a that? like yeah. It's like uh, Acria. It just feels the like spot such where a the like frame rate stops working. Um, I didn't have that problem, but what I did notice was just the smog. Like the second you get close to that city, mm. the color mm. fucking saps out of everything around you. I'm like, ah, yes, a city. <laughs> um, and you know they've got that giant uh, power plant out there, which is interesting. I was like, where's this pollution coming from? If this is technically, um, you know, uh, clean energy or whatever. But <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on over there. But it was a, I feel it felt like such a like this. And now we've hit something industrial to kind of contrast with all of the like sort of natural spaces and like much less uh imposing structures that you've seen uh around before you know like even the like mm-hmm. weird temple things that i've kind of stumbled into across the way were uh seemed to be much more in tune with their landscape than Ecria, which like yeah it changed the color as i got towards it <laughs> mm-hmm yeah, the, I, I mean, I think like what Sable does across the board kind of period is um, uh, like it, it from every angle, it's always kind of asking you to think about scale. So, you mm-hmm. know, like the scale of a human life, like what is what is one human life or what whatever the species is here, right? What is one person's life in the kind of vastness of this uh, culture, these or these set of cultures, the civilization that they're a part of or, and like. Some of the, like you were talking about, Patrick, those bones, these like megafauna or whatever. The I, I think I wrote about this in the review too. But when you run up on the whale, which is like the the colony mm-hmm. ship that has crashed, uh, that were that like brought, it seems like the civilization, yeah, um, that makes up all the people on the planet. You know, generations back, uh, you 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 kind of run up on this thing, and like you know, as it kind of comes in, as the draw distance produces that thing. You're just like, holy shit. And then you get a sense or I got a sense. I was like, oh, yeah, like this. This is not just like uh, a planet where like a few people popped in here and there. Right. This is like a fleet of ships or something like that showed up here and like seeded this planet with the remainder of some other civilization or some other group of people. So like there's this really cool kind of plane back and forth with like. Um, the things that you see that are really, really huge and kind of insurmountable. Yeah. And even the lore feels that way, too, where it's like you get these really small pieces. And it's actually kind of frustrating, I think, that the pieces of information you get about the ships where you can like go in, in into each of these like crash ships and you get these like audio logs or, or text logs. But they're like two sentences. They each. are. They're so short. <laughs> I constantly thought I that I was uh, if it, it felt like they came up with. Uh, like, oh, it'd be neat to like break this up as like a bunch of, um, they're also like really, uh, uh, reliable sort of like travel markers. So like mm-hmm. they're, yeah. so to, to set it up there, there are these sh- like kind of grounded ships, which, um, inside there's always like a couple of questionably easy pick up the object and p- 
pick up the battery and put it into the power generator. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the battery is right next to the power generator as opposed to like hidden in like a more specialized spot. Um, Sometimes they're harder than that. I, I'm going to give it the puzzle. I like the puzzle design in this game, actually. I think it's good. Yeah, I think it's pretty uh, naturalistic. Be- there are just so, there are just some times where it's like the battery, like three or four times the battery is just right there. And it's like, yeah. OK, like yeah. I couldn't have like Patrick, looked for it on the corner. get there if you don't put it in? <laughs> oh, also, you don't uh, put the battery that, uh, <laughs> We should we should really quickly be be clear about what the game actually is now that I think about it. I don't think we've said that it's like a exploration based like platformer where your only verbs are essentially jump and if you pick pick up an item and throw an item like mm-hmm. uh and ride your hover bike but that's just mm-hmm. another version of movement but so like the puzzles are limited to that space of like mostly it's about getting a thing from point a to b and figure out which way to throw it because you can't carry things when you're gliding when you're doing your little yeah. hover Right. Yeah, there's climbing with a very similar, you know, kind of Breath of the Wild uh, stamina, stamina management yeah, system, yeah. and then and then gliding, which is just kind of like uh, hovering. Yeah. You know, kind of a um, I I don't know traditional platformer hovery kind of thing. I mean, also uh, like Breath of the Wild with the little hang glider, except it doesn't. Oh yeah. Do your uh, it doesn't uh, interact with your stamina at all, so you can kind of hover as long as you can go uh, mm-hmm. horizontally. <laughs> Yeah, and if you get to the spot that I get where the dinosaur bones are, uh, you can climb so extraordinarily high that, <laughs> I mean, you can, there was a point where, like, the gliding's kind of slow. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of float to this, like, giant, like, I don't know, like, crash ship uh, that I was going to go uh, interact with. And, and like, to, to to pick up on the point I was making before about the ships, the ships always have, like, these giant, like, uh, pink, like, red uh, blinking lights. And so if you're just, like, not quite sure what you should be doing next if you haven't if you can't buy a map for the area it's all like one of the more useful things to do in sables like climb high circle around and if you see like a blinking red light like head in that direction and along the way you'll probably like they end up being really good signposts for like other things mm-hmm. in in the world um but i i, I was able to like fly what honestly must have been like several in-game miles and then eventually was like all right i'm gonna drop to the ground and uh, uh call my bike and that's actually one of the i don't know if it's ever explained uh i almost don't want it to be explained one of the, the cool like lorry bits is that it's it's implied early on and it seems more just like color and character to the world of like Hey, like we sort of treat machines as people. Like they have a they have they have names that are uncovered over time. There's a personality to them. Um, these are not just uh, like spare parts that we clunk together and they're a yeah. tool. Like the the these have like an actual not necessarily a soul. But anyway, mm-hmm. like when you get onto the world, and it's like, oh right, well, how are they going to solve the the bit about? Uh, well, I climbed up this way, came out the other way. Are you really going to make me go? like fetch my bike or is there like some sort of mechanic and the mechanic is like you whistling like you're yeah. whistling your horse <laughs> yeah it's and it's so good and again I, I hope they never explain it because it's so <laughs> much cooler that i think i'm like talking to this machine yeah um without any explanation mm-hmm. for why or how how this came about it's just it's so much cooler left blank because the first time i did it i i legitimately set the controller down and went wow that rules. Uh, like it's just such a cool way to treat, you know, what in a normal game would be, you know, some animal that you've picked up to be your, yeah. your mode of transportation. Well, uh, there is no, I, I mean, I get, there is, I guess the machinists, like the, these people that you're referring to, right. They're right. the people that kind of help you make your, your hover bike thing. I, in my review, I called it a glider, but after I published it, I realized, I don't know if it's actually called a glider. I mean, it has a name, right. It's called uh Samoon. Samoon. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, the machinists say 
you know, like you said, not only do they have like kind of souls and personalities, but they have a call and like a name to them before they are made. You know, they're they're eternal in some ways, right? Like, like you're like you, when you make a machine, you're like building something into existence that's always existed to some degree, yes, yeah, and like yeah. and the creation of it, you are giving it like a physical form that we can perceive in our realm, which is like a really, yeah. <laughs> like I've seen ideas of that in other forms of media and sci-fi, but in this game in particular, I don't know. I, I found it tremendously cool and it like does a lot of world building that I don't need to have spelled out because then yeah. your imagination just kind of runs wild with like what that could mean and what the implications are. It's like, am I, am I these ships, people, these are these dead ships, like actual dead, you know I'm like? What is yeah. what, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, I mean, that's the cool thing about it, too, is that it runs into, you know, obviously there there are lots of like human belief systems that include forms of animism, right? You know, things mm. that are non-human having human capabilities. Uh, but what it really reminded me of was the late 19th century in Europe, you have mesmerism and animal magnetism. And these are both systems of people trying to figure out, like, especially during uh, the development of the media of that time, like, what is the relationship between you and the world outside of you? And are there energetics or things that we cannot perceive? So this is, um, you know, Patrick, get into your territory. Um, uh, seances. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, thanks. Yes, yes. Let me take it down to something. That, uh, oh, yeah. A little seance. <laughs> well, Rob's not here, so how can I treat this dumbass in front of me? Why don't, wow. what's some, Look, gonna, what is I'm, something I'm, this uh, Stephen King fan can understand? I got to wear two hats here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but no, so like seances emerge from the same moment. Of, I got you. Uh, you cool. know, what is the connection between human beings and things beyond them? And can they be mediated? So like automatic writing, for example, you you know, uh, someone acting as a kind of medium and holding a pen and then speaking to the beyond. There's a whole set of like these, uh, you know, really strange uh, media influenced belief systems in the 19th century and the early 20th century where people are trying to use phonographs or writing media or whatever to, um, you know, figure out can trees speak? This is a real thing. Mm. Uh, people I've, are seen, I've a, seen the happening. They can. They can. <laughs> and, and they can. And it's bad for us. We don't want to hear what they have to say. Mark, well, um, but Mark Wahlberg is all we have uh, left. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but so that's why I really liked about it, too. Like, you know, it's this kind of um, really cool science fiction kind of thing, but also has all these little pieces that I could recognize of, you know, uh, really interesting belief systems that are not, you know, that are both still around and were very popular a hundred years ago um, that we just kind of forgotten about. And so, um, you know, I think I thought that was really cool. I, I really like all the science fiction, you know, like I'm a big science fiction games person uh, and uh, I really like all the science fiction stuff here to the point where I think that the, you know, the art style um is the thing that really pitched people on sable way back when it was first announced was Mm. hey this looks like the work of moebius right this or mobius depends on how you say it i guess um (laughs) this you know french illustrator uh gerard um metal herlant all that kind of stuff from the 1970s and uh i when i played the game what was really interesting to me is i really that didn't do as much for me i really thought the writing was very strong in the kind of yeah. world building stuff and the relationship between people and space i really quickly kind of moved through being wowed by 
uh, the art style itself, even though it's really cool. And Kado, you were talking earlier too about how that gets manipulated to kind of say certain things. Yeah, right? totally. Like you're moving into a certain space that has a particular kind of vibe. When you go into the ships too, you know the colors change. Yeah, um, in really cool ways. But yeah, that, it's that, never it, just uh, have, an, yeah. an effect of lighting that changes you. Oftentimes, there'll be sections too where like things get fully desaturated in certain like valleys and things. Like it's really they they use it mm-hmm. to really uh, great effect. But it does feel like at a certain point they move past like look at how cool this looks and how you can take a really cool looking screenshot of this to the new aesthetic thing that we're interested in wowing you with is shifting scale, which you mentioned earlier, right? Like the mm-hmm. the whale just being so massive compared to everything else. Even like Ecria, the city that I was talking about, I was like, this seems like pretty massive for anything human built that I've uh, run into yet. Like as far as things that where people are living currently, like this is like, oh wow, look at this. This is a city. Like this is what cities look like in this world. Then the whale like dwarfs it, which is wild. (laughs) Like, um, yeah. And and some of that stuff too, like the, so the thing that it's really funny, I didn't I didn't see any images of it before the game came out. But since the game has come out, it's like everyone uses it for, you know, uh, the Twitter image or whatever. But the Bridge of Betrayers, have you both seen that? I'm no. that, that I believe the Bridge of Betrayers is like what got me going in the south uh, west direction, because there's like one mm-hmm. of the quest mark, one of the early quests. It's like, hey, go find this person or something over there. But yeah. they don't mark it on your map. They just say it's mm-hmm. to the southwest of um, Burnt Oak. Uh, station mm-hmm. and I was like, all right, I'll just head in that direction. Like I did this after I finished up like that that first main city to the to the northwest. Um, I really didn't have like a particular place to head, and like that's that's what took me south towards. But I I haven't found that yet. But I instead I found the dinosaur bones and have spent two hours mm. climb, climbing that. <laughs> well, as much oh, as I can. Overshot it a little bit, I will say. <laughs> it, it's it was it was more close, but. Uh, okay, well, I don't want to spoil any of the imagery of it for you, but the the cool part about the Bridge of Betrayers in the general sense is it like is obviously a memorial to something, and it obviously has like social or cultural or religious significance. It's a little unclear, um, but and it just is like this Dark Souls looking thing, like <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere, right? Just right. this massive architectural thing um, that that has that, that if you looked at it and you were being this kind of like. I don't know, incredulous, I'm not bought in on this thing. You could look at it and be like, oh, this is just here because they thought it would look cool. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, it does look extremely cool. And it like demonstrates everything, a whole lot of things, I think. It's like a bridge that doesn't go anywhere. It's a bridge over a chasm that does not connect any two important things in any <laughs> in any way. Um, but, it, you know, it's not as if there are two roads that you can follow. At least I don't think that there are on either side. But it's this kind of thing where I was like, oh, yeah, it's like this is like human beings as a species we make all kinds of weird shit for no reason yeah. right like that's it's like what we're up to constantly and uh, uh you know that i saw that and i was like they're just like us like <laughs> what, what a cool what a cool thing like science fiction they got machine souls and they're just like us um, it honestly it has sometimes made me wonder what if this is all the same people or not, or if any of this mm-hmm. is remnants from some other civilization that was here before the ships landed, just something about the difference in what feels like the amount of uh, wear, I guess. Although I guess you could say a metal ship might just stand up to wear more easily, but like there's enough empty space in the narrative here that I could imagine it being like, no, these ruins were just here and people picked up on what they want those ruins and the like mystical 
like temples and things that you run into to mean after the fact, mm-hmm. right? But um, and I love that that space is there to just kind of like imagine like no, no, this was just generations back. They built this and maybe we lost the the original meaning or who knows, maybe this was always here and we've never known what its original use was. But um, that sense yeah. of wonder and like that, that, that really kind of drives the exploration is really, really strong. Well, you know, it's really, I think for the most part, video games are pretty bad at being evocative without filling things in right like not to be the person who is you know and i just did a minute ago but to to pull in dark souls or like that kind please, of thing please. <laughs> but that's what people like yeah. right i mean that, that's part of the the narrative uh drive of many of those games is like hey you have to kind of do a little bit of work here right you got to do some work to kind of figure out what's going on and there are competing interpretations and whatever um, and, you know, um, science fiction novels and fantasy novels have long had a tradition of that, of giving you a lot of explicit stuff and then leaving things for fans to kind of fill in or think about on their own. And video games are often pretty explicit about hitting you over the head with themes or narrative mm-hmm. moments or whatever. And, you know, Kata, what you're talking about here is, I think, really strong and really interesting in Sable is that they are the developers are really good at pulling off the gas there, right? Right. And like taking you right up to the precipice of being like, hey, this is extremely evocative and is making me ask questions about the world. And you can go around and you can ask a lot of people about these things. And there are some really amazing, especially kind of toward the end of the game, really amazing moments of being being able to pay off like conversations or things you've seen from earlier in the game uh, in dialogue in a way that I would not have expected uh, this game to do. Mm. But for the most part, it like just takes you up to that, you know, kind of evocation or like you said, wonder. And it's, you know, it provides the platform for you to be like, I wonder what this world was like. Yeah. And I wonder if it wanted to do it. And I'm sure that makes some people say, well, let's get a sequel or a prequel. Let's find out about it. <laughs> or wait, yeah, like, where's no. the data pad that, it, that explains <laughs> exactly. it to and me like, if, I, if I look close enough? Absolutely well, I mean, it's, not. It's like, uh, yeah. some, some of the best worlds, you know, there was a lot of conversation. I missed most of it cause I had this sick baby home uh, all week, but I saw mm-hmm. just, just a lot of discussion, um, on, on, on the hellscape that is Twitter about like lore, lore Bibles and like how that oh, fits yeah. in the context of games. And I got released this discussion is that often the way that I think about it is that some of the, my favorite worlds are ones in which, like, I know the designer has the answer and then they pick, they, they're carefully selecting how much they show me so that they can. They can paint a picture, one that I can then start to fill in those gaps for myself, even if I don't have conclusive answers, but that the what the designers, the artists are showing me is is enough for me to feel confident that it isn't just like you said um, earlier about the, the bridge uh, where it's like, oh, it's just here because it's cool. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's all it is, and that can be enough, and the player can then do the work themselves. But a lot of what I get in Sable is like really smart people knowing more about what's maybe happening or their own theories on like that, the hows and why, but that what they choose to show the player create allows them to do not not really theory crafting. Mm-hmm. I think theory crafting usually implies us like us, a, a solution an answer that like mm-hmm, the, yeah. the players uh, primarily in video games, you know, especially can come to. Whereas here it's more like, I don't know. Like it's just, uh, I don't know. It's the vibe I get even from the people in the world where they're just mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know. Like I kind of like no one there seems to quite know either. Everyone's got their ideas and their theories. And that's kind of the fun of, of the game is like getting these little bits and pieces, but they give you a lot to chew on. It's not as yeah. though it feels purposely. I mean, it's purposely vague, but not in a way that's like, well, it's just a bunch of really neat artwork that they, you know, uh, they're trying to evoke from a certain era. It's like, no, like they, this feels like a fully crafted lived in world in which I just can only surmise so much from 
you know, the tools I have and what's being shown to me and like the era in which I've, I've dropped into. And that's really cool. Like that's a really hard thing to pull off. Um, yes. and, uh, I, 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 I can't answer this, uh, cause I don't make games, but I do wonder if some of that is in an, not, maybe not an inherent advantage, but do the, this game is like primarily made by two people, I believe. Um, uh, with some additional writing support. Sure. Yeah. But it's not yeah, a big yeah. team, right? Like this is, it's this not, isn't, it's not a large team. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you know, stack that against, uh, what's the Bethesda, uh, sci-fi game coming out next year? The, uh, uh, Star, Star Spaceship. Spaceship. spaceship? <laughs> Yeah, you know, spaceship. Spaceship. Uh, you know, like that's a game where it's going to be the opposite, right? Like right. everything will <laughs> yes. be answered. Um, yeah. And because by almost by the nature of like the resources, like games intrinsically move in the direction of, well, players de- do demand it. Like this is a player driven sort of like a behavior. Like players right. do want, like we also live in a culture that wants that. Wants that. And so like I almost wonder if there's part of what this game, if this game was given $100 million, 150 people, would they have arrived at the same conclusions about how to do their story and how much to tell? Like, it's one of those things where be, by being an indie game, it, by having to pick and choose your own battles over resources, I think it specifically lent itself to this sort of world where, like, it. I don't know that it would have been a better world with more resources no. and more explanations. I, I like, like, the the middle ground um, that they've they found here. Would maybe, like... I've been having a few weird like graphical hitches and maybe like that's where those resources might have helped. But honestly, I feel like something about the the main narrative and the way that the the their space is left in the kind of evocative uh environment dovetail really nicely, right? Like the the idea of going out to find yourself in a world where there's always going to be gaps. You know, there's always space to mm-hmm. learn and grow as a person and there's always space to like think about the world around you and your relationship to it that I feel like that's that feels so purposeful that I hope I I would I believe that that is like a a very um specific design choice for the game like it feels like this is what this game is about it is about uh finding yourself and that entails you know traveling a world that is mysterious to you even if someone out there has an idea or a theory about what is going on. Right. Like I feel like that, that explore that's that, that sense of exploration is both, you know, external and internal to Sable the character in such a way that I feel like even if they were given a bunch of resources, they might've just made it a more polished version of this, you know? Yeah, Uh, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I've been playing (laughs) on the, on, on the, uh, the series X and I mean, it just has, it'd be the kind of thing where it's like, Hey, if you if this all sounds really enticing, like they've said, they they're working on like performance patches and stuff like that. Um, a lot of that comes at the end of game development. Right. And this one, like a lot of games, you know, COVID, whatever, you know, came in a little bit hot. Like it is actually kind of distracting. It's like it's weird because this game came out. Uh, it had a really popular demo um, over the summer, um, mm-hmm. and people were like, "Hey, why isn't this beautiful game at sixty frames a second? And they were like, "Uh." Okay, and they just like, kind of turned on <laughs> 60, which is fine on the PC where like if you have a powerful yeah. enough rig, you can kind of brute force any sort of like uh, code uh, on optimization. Also, to be like, fair, less- I'm running it on capped, which might also explain some of the hitches, but it does I, when it's smooth, I think, I think it looks fucking great. A yeah. Yeah. Well, that's and that's the weird thing is like when I'm in some of the, like when I'm in the, there'll be times where I'm in the desert and it's it's buttery smooth. Yeah. And, like it looks it looks in 
incredible. And it's where like it being 60, I'm not a big frame rate person, but it like it lends itself to the art. And, the, and we've talked about this kind of on the last podcast about, you know, how that like, you know, uh, works up against the animation style that looks like it's lower. Fr- I mean, it's just it, mm-hmm. it works really well. Yeah. But then I'll just like get into the main city and I'm like chugging in the 20s for like no <laughs> particular reason. Yeah. And that ends up detracting from like the message of the aesthetic um, for a game that uh, I agree that the aesthetic eventually like it's not a trick, but like that part of it wears off and the other parts of the game have to end up supporting it in order for it to maintain being interesting. Um, but there are moments where like the aesthetic drags to a degree, mostly because it has such high highs. If it was a game where from the start, like, hey, this is going to kind of run not that great, but we've got all this other stuff we got going on and it'll be fine. I'm totally cool with that. I don't think frame rate should be like, uh, you know, an end all be all. Um, but in this case, it's like sometimes you hit that good, good frame rate. And it's like, oh, like this is it helps the other <laughs> stuff hit on harder cylinders um, um, in a way. Uh, there's one question that someone wrote in on that uh, is not directly related to Sable, but I thought it would be um, I think it, uh, it'd be a good place to kind of uh, pin the discussion on before we move on to something else. Hey, Waypoint mm-hmm. crew, this comes from uh, Corliss in the UK. Love the fo- love the pod. Looking forward uh, to more of this brave new Waypoint world. My question is about objective markers in games and how they affect your play. With the release of Deathloop, which I haven't played yet, I've heard a lot of uh, I heard a lot from different gaming pods about immersive sims, and in particular, whether it's more fun in those games to turn off aids like objective markers. The idea is that turning off encourages exploration rather than letting the game handhold you to direct you to your destination. How do you feel about objective markers, mini maps, and other aids that help you navigate the game world? I almost always have everything left on by default, but I usually avoid going direct to the objective, assuming one is marked. I like poking around, finding collectibles, listening to audio logs, or seeing if there are alternate routes. While especially true of immersive sims, I play almost everything this way, unless it is a very linear game. In this way, the objective marker is like a warning. Don't go here until you've finished exploring. But enough about me. What about you all? <laughs> Cheers. Um, so that was just like interesting to bring up in the context of a game like Sable, in which, uh, you know, I've seen some... You know, you wrote about this cam in, in, in your review. It's like it's a game that's in some ways very directionless until you get to a certain point. And then in some ways comes become like kind of a kind of rote. Where it's like, hey, you made it to the spot. Wasn't that cool? Uh, do you want to go like fetch three things because you're here? And uh, mm-hmm. and that part is a little less interesting than all the you other parts of the world. Yeah, exactly. How much do you love finding beetles? This game has a lot of beetles, um, yes. big and small. Um, but I'm curious what you what you made of this, like sent like mm-hmm. games, how they guide you, what your personal preferences, turning things on and off. Like, how did you approach Sable? You know, um, well, you know, in, ter- in terms of exploration. I really like that Sable, in a, in a general sense, I like that Sable has a good middle of the road, right? Like, if you're someone who believes we need to turn all these things off, Sable has a really interesting middle of the road for me because it gives you a compass, but no real location data. And so you can just kind of follow it in the direction, and it's still, you know, when you're on the ground in that moment, especially because, like you were talking about, so much of the game is, like, climbing up stuff and then moving over to it or figuring out how to go to a higher thing to then glide over to a shorter thing or whatever, that that it gets you in the area, which you kind of need some help, I think, in this game sometimes. I mean, you were just talking about you went looking for the Bridge of Betrayers and couldn't find it or you overshot it or whatever. Right. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that having some broad guidance is good. Uh, the second thought I have about that is uh, I can't believe that Kirk Hamilton would stoop to a pseudonym <laughs> in order to write this question. <laughs> wow. uh, yeah, if you want to go mean, read the one person like, <laughs> oh, new game came out with giant open map. Wait turn two weeks. Off. Turn off the UI in which Kirk <laughs> Hamilton rewrites the article he's written 20 times for Kotaku. And I'm yeah, sure yeah. has just 
then transferred to a podcast format with, was it Triple Click, I think is the, the podcast yes. that, that he does. Um, I, I don't listen to it because you know what? I've heard you already say this before, Kirk. Like I'm yelling <laughs> like he's going to listen to this podcast, but but put this out into the world. Someone will at him. Oh, mm-hmm. to make a really cool podcast called Strong Songs. It's actually a really mm-hmm. good podcast. Yeah. You should listen it's to great. It. Um, Kirk, is, Kirk is great. Kirk is very good, uh, but he's he's been like probably like the biggest advocate publicly like yes. in, in games who's like very much a... Uh, very specific on like he gets into a game that has a world and strips all the UI out and then and then goes from there. Yeah. Uh, I you know, I don't know. I guess I'm of, of two minds. Right. Which is uh, on one hand, I'm sure that that if you are someone who experiences strong senses of immersion, right, where you feel like you're part of the world and you're seeing all these things interacting with one another and you're really kind of feeling it. Um, then this is probably like really powerful and useful for you because you're reading the the world and its signs and you're seeing using the level design to kind of guide yourself along um, and you're having to read road signs, I guess, because there are some of those in Sable, yeah. uh, at least. Uh, I don't know about things like I haven't played Deathloop. Um, but so, you know, it probably encourages a lot of exploration if you were not prone to doing that yourself, uh, you know, on all kinds of range touch properties like Game Study Study Buddies or, um, you know, Too Much Future, our show about the Fallout games. I, I'm very honest, very regularly uh, in saying that I don't really experience immersion in these ways, right? Like I am a pure, um, uh, I, I don't know. I see the game, I see game systems as game systems. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, when I am playing a game, I am playing a game system and I interact with it in that way. That doesn't mean I don't have like strong feelings about it uh, or uh, have, you know, uh, big emotional runs or think that there are better or worse ways for me to engage I can't with tell. Is, is that just game critic brain has broken all of us? And, <laughs> like, I don't I've never been able to tell if that is because I'm the same way. And yeah. it's like, is that just because since like 14 years old, I've been writing and analyzing games in a certain way. And then I just I switched and I can't turn that off or or is that just how I enjoy games? I see them as, as once I once I learned what systems were. Then mm-hmm. it was sort of like, oh, like, like, like I, I see the matrix. Like, I see how these games work. I cannot experience them as though they are a seamless, you know, uh, world in which I don't see where the lines, the lines are. Um, yeah. I haven't been able to figure out if that's if that's just I'm broken um, yeah. or if that's just how I'm built. I, I don't know. You know, there, there's this weird thing where obviously some of it's cultural, right? Uh, we recently on Game Study Study Buddies did, um, oh, I'm blanking on her first name, but Buckles. It's the first dissertation on video games. It's written okay. during the, the, the 1970s. Uh, it's on adventure. And she writes this whole thing where um, she is watching people play, you know, the the um, uh, parser game adventure, if you're familiar with that, you know, Colossal Cave Adventure, that kind of thing. And uh, only one person of all the people she watches uh, play it, only uh, one person engages with it as if it is an amoral system. So it's like a game and you're just like trying to figure out what, what works. Everyone else is like, there's an angry dwarf and he's yelling at me. I need to figure out why that dwarf is angry. <laughs> from like, yeah. And from like a game's perspective, you know, the game's perspective, he's, he's just a, a puzzle that has to be solved. Right. But these people, because they're, you know, they're either haven't played games before at this point or they the games they've played are very different. Uh, when you introduce all this kind of like characterization or whatever, they start not knowing what to do with it. And they they treat it as if it has systems that aren't there or not, which is to say that like there's some of that. And some of it is like, you know, as you're saying, just the way that you approach the thing. And I, I think I approach 
most games as before I was a game critic, and maybe this is part of the reason that I became a game critic and someone who <laughs> just does podcasts where I dive deep looking at very weird stuff right? <laughs> that, that people aren't really diving deep into. It's just I like looking at the way things work, right? It's mm, all a little machine right. and I like seeing the way that the machine works. And so the, the thing I would say about to take us all the way back to UI and like whether you, I would turn it off or on or not, I never turn that stuff off because the UI is part of the machine. Right. right, like if they didn't if, want it there, then don't put it. Because then I, I, I I'm, yeah. I'm on, I'm on your side, which is like then it becomes like a personal preference of like how you want to turn that dial. And more or less, I trust the designer. Like if it's here, then that's how I'm going to interact with these set of tools or like the interfaces in front of me. I mean, I do, I do actually. It's I follow a lot of what Corliss does, and I, I do that. Mm-hmm. I this is part of what I like about Sable is because it kind of it. Forces you by uh, it does have objective markers, but there are mm-hmm. times where you'll have cycled through the quests that have useful objective markers, and it's just like, well, there's other parts of the map. Yeah. You don't have a, a place specifically to go. You don't. You also cannot purchase a like more detailed map from like a, the cartographer. Like which, if you for people who play the game, like the the map starts completely blank, and then when you hit like major locations it will mark that on your map like your personal map but -hmm. until um you've purchased like a more detailed map from like the the cartographer that is kind of floating around different parts of the world kind of like uh what's the what's the dude in link uh the little tingle tingle, yes like this basically (laughs) like sable's a version of tingle they all have balloons too fuck (laughs) exactly yeah yeah uh See, well, he's got, and the cartographer has a real Majora's Mask looking. Absolutely, like, face yeah. well, there's yeah. a lot of. In general, this game has some real Majora's Mask uh, aesthetic. I mean, like that little mm-hmm. the mask you get um, to get uh, the the person's friend uh, or the like the, they're oh, like the Batman mask? child out of jail. Yeah, the Batman <laughs> mask, like that yeah, one. I love that one. <laughs> has a little like Cthulhu slash Majora's Mask uh, vibes going on. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, it's, you know, if you get the, carto- the one of the, like, the quote-unquote proper maps uh, from the cartographer, it still doesn't m- mark a bunch of locations, but there are, like, certain elements of the, mm-hmm. that map that are like, oh, this seems to be gesturing at, like, a, a spot where, they're, like, there could be things for me to look at. But it's still, I still have to kind of, like, go and figure it out, like, head in that direction and then make the choice of, like, am I supposed to, am I supposed to be doing this? And, like, that's, mm-hmm. I like that tension because I am someone that, uh... You know, this is this is heightened because I'm a, a parent with less free time. But this was true long before that. I like following objectives. Like I like kind of like going mm-hmm. in the direction of the thing, doing the thing, feeling a sense of progress that is like intrinsic to the satisfaction I get out of video games. And mm-hmm. I like when games push against that. But I, I want it to happen naturally. And like Sable does a really good job of that. Where it's like there are just enough moments where I feel aimless and I'm forced to get outside of my comfort zone. But as a result of doing that, the game still the map is so well-tuned and designed that in doing that and just as you're like at the like the peak of me feeling uncomfortable and like oh what am i supposed to do i will find something to do and that's really fucking hard to like to find that balance and i think a lot of games that's why they err on the side of all these markers that you're talking about because they get so worried understandably go watch how regular people play video games that aren't us. Like there's a reason a lot of the stuff ends up in video games because people get lost and they don't like that sense of, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's why it appears more in a game like Sable or becomes an optional UI element um, because they do focus testing and people go, I don't want to buy this game because I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do. Um, That's a, that's a tough tension to put in a game. Well, uh, you know, a lot of that too, right. Has to, 
you know, I, I totally get why some people like turn those things off, especially when it comes to uh, like fatigue of like, I know that for the Assassin's Creed games, for example, right? I, I talked to a lot of people who were like, I have icon fatigue. I don't like seeing all these things <laughs> mm, on the map. Yeah. And I like totally get that. But I'm just, I guess, immune to that. Like I, I experience no emotion <laughs> when I see like, I just think, oh, that's a bunch of shit I won't do. Right? Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, oh, a bunch of fist fighting missions. I think I'm good. Yeah. Like, I'm not interested yeah. in doing that stuff. Um, um, and I think the pressure that I would put on like the the kind of um, remove the UI um, player would be, can you remove the UI and then never look at the map? Because uh, because mm. right, if what you're doing and, and like I'm not in, I'm not saying this in any way to like invalidate this way of playing. I think you can do whatever you want. It's it's a machine and you can remove or add parts of it to your will, whatever you're like. It's your enjoyment. Yeah. Do whatever you yeah. want. Um, but you but uh, you know is. If you just remove the icons and you're looking at the map all the time, are you just performing the labor that the machine was doing for you to begin with? Yeah. And are you just adding a bunch of like arbitrary steps to turn yourself into a map marker like organizer? And that's like right. the, that's the kind of manual labor I'm not interested in doing <laughs> with my brain in a video game is like turning myself into an algorithm to remember where all these things are when the game was automating that already. Right. Um, and maybe that's like the, you know, maybe that turns certain dials for people, but it, it doesn't do anything for me. Oh, it definitely, I mean, there's people who, you know, make maps in the real world for, just for fun. So it definitely is a thing that hits people in a certain way. I, I, I do want to point out, cause I don't think we've explicitly mentioned it though, but I do really enjoy the sort of diegetic way that you can place markers in Sable. They mm -hmm. let you oh. do that early on, right. Where you like, you just look out towards the horizon. You can kind of see a little diamond move out further and further from you, and then you can drop it there, and then it'll appear on the compass as a little uh, direction mm -hmm. to go, and you can kind of see it in the distance. But I really enjoyed the, like, there's a kind of a, it's like the the ring of your compass is expanding, so you can watch the line move it over the the different contours of the hills and de desert and rocks before you and that I, f I just thought that was a really nice way to do that instead of the the old open the map drop it on a thing that looks interesting and go that way sort of thing it's more which about you can, the which you can do also, right right it's also, it took me it took me <laughs> yeah. six hours to realize this game had fast travel it never tells you as far yeah. as i can tell why do you, uh, why do you need you just, it Get on that bike. Well, it's so fun. Be, because when I want to go turn in my scrap metal, uh, scrap metal or the, the, the eggs. Travel for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> because I, what I thought I was doing, and I, I'd be so curious. I should just maybe send an email to developers. Like, yeah. Because it doesn't tell you that there's fast travel. Right. Like, it, it, I'm, mm -hmm. I, unless I missed it. But I think the three no. of us, like, no one saw like a dialogue thing that was like, I, nope. I did not. And it also what, what happened to me. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it doesn't like. Even I'm I go finish your story. I think you're gonna say what I was gonna say, actually. Well, it's just like it seems like you sort of like naturally discover it, which is like an interesting way to present uh like a like a travel mechanic, which is like when is the moment that you would want to do that? Well, it's like, hey, we have a couple of kind of fetch questy things in here to get resources and to upgrade your stamina. Um, and you might be on the other part of the map and you might be thinking to yourself, like, how the hell do I get back there? And like, all right, I'm gonna set this marker and then I'll just like start on my journey and like hopefully I'll come across some interesting landmarks on the way. And like the moment you do that over at a marked location, it's like, yo, you just want to like travel to this shit. I was like, yes, I <laughs> Actually, do. Yeah. Okay. I do. And it was like, it was a, it, I, the thing was like, it was delightful. Cause I found it. What felt like the most naturalistic way to do that, which is like around this tension point where like, I'm just far enough away 
that 10 minutes of that like slow driving over areas I've already been to <laughs> would not be enjoyable. Um, and the game was like, cool, like we've got you. Um, but I can also like imagine it's not hard to imagine a nightmare scenario where someone is like 25 hours into this game. Here's there's fast travel and is up throwing their controller <laughs> across the room because they never, never quite picked up on it. But I thought that was just like a really it. It feels so intentional to, to, ha- mm-hmm. to yeah. essentially hide that from the player. Um, until they kind of come across it um, themselves that I it was it was really neat did that did that answer or encompass yeah yeah that was literally what I was gonna say is that the way it was presented was absolutely just like oh I'm gonna put my cursor over the thing on the map and uh, hit the button to mark it but it yeah yep just immediately is like hey let's go let's let's teleport Uh, Yeah, Sable. Very, very good video game. I'm. It seems like we're all mm-hmm. liking it quite, quite a bit. You can go read Cam's full review over mm-hmm. uh, at Waypoint if you'd like to check that out. And I think I'm gonna keep trying to play, even though I got a thousand other. Th- the September oh was really God. busy, yeah, and I just had like a month has ba- been... backlog of games that I played three hours of, and was like, "Cool, this seems very interesting." <laughs> and then start the, the yeah. next thing, and like you know, and I'm in the midst of redacted video game that I'll, I can talk about God. next week. Um, Alan Wake so remastered? Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I sent that code to Rob got one of them. Um, uh, oh, I've um, got one. I'm ready. Uh, I'm, exci- I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see how different that is because um, Alan Wake's one of my all time oh, favorites. Um, so I'm bring me I'm, back. Bring me back to talk about Alan Wake. Oh, I'll be yeah. for hey, full... well, speaking, you know, it's mm-hmm. the Stephen King uh, influence far, far and wide. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, Let's take a quick break. Uh, We'll come back. We'll touch on a couple of the games and also do some mailbag. We'll be right back. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Um, well, the Sable was our big game for this week. Um, I will say, maybe I'll save uh, Unsighted uh, for, for next week. I'll at least just mm. uh, point people towards oh, the yeah. review um, uh, uh, that we have up on Waypoint from Moises uh, Tavares, who has been on to Waypoint Radio to talk about Deathloop. We had him on uh, Mondays, uh, uh, or this earlier this week's podcast, who... Uh, help us uh, spoil uh, and talk about uh, Life is Strange, True Colors, and the whole Life mm-hmm. is Strange franchise. I want to say that the, the Unsighted is this uh, top-down uh, action, like Zelda, Zelda-shy thing where it takes place in a post-apocalypse or post-post, I don't know exactly where, where it is in the, the spectrum of apocalypses, but basically, like this meteor lands, there's this thing called Anima that gives consciousness to, uh, to, to the robots, to the machinery, oh. um, that creates, obviously, a conflict between the humans that were relying on them to be tools and not to like have self-determination. Um, but the cool thing about it um, that is also like sort of the conflict that Moises is, is grappling with in, in uh, his review of the game is that when you come across uh, every 
NPC, including like your little like uh, Navi sidekick that is uh, that is uh, kind of running around with you. Um, they have an hour count on attached to them. Um, and that is how much time they have in the world in real time um, before they just die. Um, and main characters like big, big NPCs obviously have a ton of hours so that you can, you know, the game kind of signposts like characters that will probably stick around for most, if not all of the story, regardless Mm. of how much time you take. Um, but otherwise what happens is when you're like exploring around in this like killer looking pixel action game with like a really sweet parry system is that you're constantly getting push notifications from the game. That's like, Hey, remember that? Remember the person in the village? Yeah, they're fucking dead. Um, or they go unsighted, which is where they lose, like, uh, the ability to wrangle their own consciousness. They kind of go feral. Um, hmm. And it's like a game where you're just constantly reminded of, like, in a Majora's Mask sort of way. But whereas Majora's Mask starts over, <laughs> and you just like, mm-hmm. can I fix this? And Sight is just like, you can't fix this. You didn't fix it. Um, and you can get these little, uh, this item called Meteor Dust, which extends more time to certain characters. So it's like, hey... Uh, I would like this character to stick around longer. Here's a little bit more meteor dust, but you just don't have very much of it. And so it's just a game where you're like reminded of like the choices and failures and the tension between those two. Or you can go into the options menu and like put on explorer mode and it's like, mm. eh, you don't have to deal with any of that. And, and it was interesting to read Moises's tension with that, which, which he seemed to deeply respect what they were going for, but it ultimately like sort of ruined his experience with the game and he turned on the explorer mode, which you can do at any point in the game uh, at the very end. It just resurrects like the characters that have died, which I think is awesome. Like, and that's a really smart way to handle it, which is the Mm -hmm. game recognizing, Hey, you may engage with this feature and then find out seven hours in that you're like, it's not working for you. And rather than starting over the game is like, ah, soft reset. Like, Hey, those bring those characters back and you can engage with them till you're, till you're finished here. So I'm looking okay. forward to uh, playing more of that, but that's on kind of just like on the stack of like, can I get to that in early November mm-hmm. if things slow down? I'm glad someone is experimenting in that space because that was the really cool part of uh, the first dead rising game yep. was, you know, mm-hmm. all the people that you can rescue that are all on timers and you had to like do quite a bit of timer, uh, you know, manipulation and, you know, pulling people around or whatever. And that's such a cool idea that I can't think of any other game that's really gone hard, hard into that. Well, um, it was part of it was like Dead Rising was like so polarizing. It was like a lot of people really yeah. liked, hey, it's like really wacky and over the top and like gorgeous looking, you know, like introduction to like high definition video games. Also, it's making me feel miserable and stressed out all the time, which for a lot of it was like, yeah, that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like that's be, the point. Yeah. That's why this is interesting. <laughs> Drink um, orange juice. It's cool. Uh, and then the, and the, ser- then the series like moved away, yeah. you know, from that, you know, up and through like dead rising three, which was just like, ah, I don't know. Isn't it just cooler to mow down hundreds of zombies on screen at once? It's like, yeah, I guess. But mm-hmm. it, se- it seems like they could have found like a middle ground. Um, and I, I'm with you. I, I, as someone that adores Majora's mask, partially because of that sense of like impending doom and failure, um, I like it when games play with that that tension and like force the player to sort of like reckon with their their choices in a way that is goes beyond just uh you know I'm you know you're playing the good character or, mm-hmm. or the bad character. <laughs> yeah. Do you um, want uh you know all of your upgrade points? Do you want them now? <laughs> or do you want them in 10 minutes? <laughs> you're a move player. <laughs> um you know, you invoked it earlier, um, but so by you met you said Dark Souls, which means when you mentioned to me also that you had finished Dark Souls 
remastered. Now I now I need to ask you about that. Uh, Austin, a couple mm-hmm. of months ago, accidentally beat Dark Souls remastered because he like flipped it on on a lark and then went, "Oops, now I'm gonna beat the whole game." Um, so I'm, I'm curious what what drew you to that. Is this just like beating the the drum oh, to get I? ready for Elden Ring? You just like fell down a, a Souls hole. Oh, I totally typed. Well, this is really funny. I typed Dark Souls Remastered, but definitely meant Demon Souls Remastered. Oh, okay. 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 All right. Uh, but uh, yeah, the reason I was just like, hey, I want to I want to see what's up with this. And I'm like, uh, September is just like the nightmare month of the year for me for like a bunch of different reasons. Just a bunch of start a school. That, every, all exactly. Sorts of things, yeah. Exactly. Right. So like you know, teaching every day and or teaching most days and then just a bunch, a bunch of other stuff. Um, and uh, of course, it's the time when lots of video games start coming out, too, for the fall. Yep. So like. So it's just a, a big thing. Got a bunch of writing due, um, you know, finishing up my my book that will hopefully be out in spring 2022. So uh, all kinds of stuff going on. And so I was like, I want to spend the weekend like not thinking about anything. I, I guess I'll play Demon Souls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so I so I like sat down with Demon Souls Remastered and kind of like knocked it out in three days or something like that. Just kind of like, you know, slammed through it. And I played through maybe about half of it on the PS3 a few years ago um, and had never finished it. And I was just like back into it and feeling the groove and uh, controversial opinion, obviously. But that game's great. <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. what, what a great game. <laughs> um, yeah. But Rob Zachley famously uh, made it his game of the year. After playing like six hours, I was like, this game's fantastic. I love this game. I'm never going to get past all these gargoyles, but this, I love this game. Uh, it's one of my all time favorite moments. Like, that's your game with it. Great. You know what? I'll take it. I'll take another yeah. convert. Yeah. So great. So I don't, you know, I don't have uh, much more to say about it. I don't think other than that. I, although, uh, if, if you want to hear me talk about it at length, probably we uh, over at Range Touch, we will probably do our monthly podcast about it for Oct. October. So at the top of November, we'll do that because my co-host Danny, uh, one of my co-hosts, Danny, uh, like stream watched me play it with the PS5 and we like mm. controller passed back and forth from uh-huh. his PlayStation 4 across the country. And then uh, yeah, me, that's, not, that's you know? super. We did that for the first time when I when Rob is streaming Resident Evil. And that mm-hmm, was like yeah. one of the sub goals was they had to pass control to me. And that it's just really neat. Like it's one of those things where I, I need to like think of like more reasons to use features like that, mm-hmm. because once you do it, like it's kind of magical how seamless it all is. Um, I just don't yeah. have that many reasons to actually do that. Yeah. As soon as we did it, we we both were like, I cannot believe this works. Like, I can't, <laughs> yeah, like, it's, yeah. like this has all of the makings of a feature that is promised, but never like the connection doesn't make or, yep. you know, it drops right. all the time or whatever. No, it just kind of works. And, and it was, uh, you know, it, it was like a real good vibe of like, hey, we're going to play couch co-op dark, you know, demon souls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're like, that's fun to do. And so, you know, it's uh, this is something you were kind of talking about earlier, Patrick. But like once you're in the world of like games criticism and playing a lot of games, you know, I've played I was checking the other day and I've played like 85 to 100 games this year. Like I've played yeah. a lot of things. Mm-hmm. and That's about normal in a year, you know, somewhere around like the 140, 150 for a total year for me. And at the point in that, it's like the moments of like true novelty and like, hell yeah, they, they kind of start coming few and far between, which is why I think when we find a game that's like Sable that, that we just genuinely enjoy across the board. I think that's why game critics are often so like, check this out. This is good. This is worth doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because, right, like, because oh, that, this made me feel, you know, that's why, I, you know, I played an hour of Boomerang X and I was like, this is the game of the year. Like, just, <laughs> just shut the fuck up. I, like, it's just so rare to have uh. like a game get a reaction out of you that way like that game 
like just spoke to me and like yeah. and I was and I played like ten minutes of it. And I was like, oh yeah, we're good. Like <laughs> don't have to play anything else this yeah. year. Like I don't have to make a list. Like I'll just put one. It's Boomerang X. Like we're yeah, done and for you the know, year. you know, that's the kind of thing. Is like I have so many hours in the tank that I know. I like I know when the thing is grabbing me and is like doing doing the thing. And like I so I I recommend. I can solid, solidly say playing Demon Souls is good. <laughs> <laughs> finally, this podcast. <laughs> finally, someone to say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um. We we have to we're gonna we're gonna lose you in fifteen minutes, so I want to make sure and get to um, mm-hmm. some mailbag questions. Which, well, okay. Now I did say that all of them were going to be uh, of a certain variety, but I, I do have to ask you this specifically, Cam. This comes from okay. Larry in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, in six words or less. Oh wow. What is Homestuck? Love you all. Fuck capitalism. Go home. <laughs> God damn it. Uh. Uh. So we we do a show. I'm not. This is not my explanation. Uh, we do a show called uh, Homestuck Made This World. Uh, Michael Lutz and I do over at Range Touch, where we are very slowly reading through Homestuck and we are explaining what it what it is. And so, um, I will defer to that for my true explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, we got to get you in the network if you really want to know about Homestuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael is concurrently working on a book project that's kind of working through Homestuck and kind of doing some of that stuff. So the podcast is kind of getting to hear us talk through the ideas that will eventually end up in publication somewhere. So that's like a pretty cool thing that's part of it too. Um, so I will I will defer to that to say if you're interested and you've heard the word Homestuck and you don't know uh, what it is and you want to find out, you can come and hear us talk about it uh, pretty slowly. Uh, and one of Michael's big arguments is like nothing about or many things about the the contemporary Internet in 2021 can be explained by looking at the early 2000s and looking at the formation of Homestuck and the way that it works. So I here's my explanation. Six words or less. Way, way fewer than six words. Uh, Homestuck is a webcomic. Damn. Wow. Wow. Damn. Not wrong. Yeah. yeah. Not wrong. In some ways. <laughs> no, it's a hundred percent accurate. Home, or, I, I'll give you an alternate explanation. Also, less than six words. Homestuck is media. There you go. That's that's okay. yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. and, and webcomic <laughs> is a media. Uh, hello, Waypoint. I'm a lifelong sci-fi fan, and recently I've started getting into horror and thrillers since they have a lot in common. I'd like to read some Stephen King, but I have no mm. idea where to start. Dark Tower was my first thought, given that I love sci-fi. That's one of many genres in Dark Tower. Uh, but that feels like a massive commitment. What's the best first king? Any advice would help. Thanks, Nathan. My recommendation is I pull one of the uh, older short story collections um, uh, to get a if you want to understand if you're like on King's like wavelength, if if like his longer stories you know, throw out, get rid of the Dark Tower, go, you know, don't look at the stand. Like, like those are those are tomes that you can you can work your way up to if you're mm-hmm. like I don't just like Stephen King I love Stephen King and would like to read <laughs> twelve hundred wor- you know like twelve hundred pages of Stephen King um, across you know potentially seven books but like I, the I've uh, watched a lot of Stephen King movies read a, a number of books over the years um, but it somehow missed a lot of the short story stuff I got really into like Clive Barker's like short mm-hmm. like that Clive Barker was a lot of oh, my yeah. entry into horror once I became an adult the and books Stephen of blood yeah. Oh yeah, like just a and it, <laughs> it's just like re- really like gross and 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 very uh, sexually explicit in a way that like <laughs> well any any King can't get sexually explicit, but he shouldn't um, and because um, he doesn't know how to do it. Um, but that would be that would be my recommendation. So it would be uh, like Night Shift is a, is a really good one. Like any any of the short story collections from the seventies, eighties, even nineties would be where I would start because I think you get a sense of 
how King centers characters and their emotions um, to make like the evil seem um, as scary as it is, as opposed to like a lot of other horror where they start from the the other space, which is like, all right, what's the evil? How do I make it spooky? All right, now mm. I need characters to like animate why we're doing what we're doing. And, you know, so I think, so I think that illustrates part of what King's power is, is like really fleshed out relatable characters. And the short stories give you, give you a lot of like the flavor of his dialogue and why it's like so easily readable um, in a mm-hmm. shorter form. But I'm curious, I'm curious where you would land on that cam. You know, so I, everything you just said, I think is right. I think if you're just like looking to kind of dip your toes in and find out what's going on there and like get a sense, because the, the other thing that the short story collections will give you too is, uh, the different Stephen King's right. Stephen yeah. King has like kind of different tones that he goes for and something like night shift or skeleton crew will, will give you that. I would say that the further you go along, the less, the, the, the more homogenous King gets the, le- the, the yeah. further into his career, the less experimental he is. I think that's just yeah. a fact. Um, and so by the time you're getting into the collections in like the nineties and the two thousands, I think they are, um, just as good, like as entertaining to read, but uh, a little bit more homogenous, a little bit samey story to story. Um, so, yeah, I would say either Night Shift or Skeleton Crew. But I would say, actually, if you if you wanted to, because the thing that's interesting to me is not just that he's like a character guy, even though that's what he's really good at. Sure. Um, and it's not just that he's like a plot guy, because sometimes he's really good at that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what we talk about on on the show um, on Just King Things pretty often is that Stephen King's a stylist um, yeah. and he has a way of doing things. And that's what's been so fascinating about doing the show is watching that develop. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the things that we associate with Stephen King so heavily so like a chapter that ends with and he never saw his son again like which is such a Stephen King kind of like maneuver to make um this like foreboding thing or like uh what we've called uh, Stephen King's like kind of cinematic mode where he will zoom out from a character and then tell you about like everyone in the neighborhood and what they're doing at that moment and then zoom back in and like someone gets murdered or whatever <laughs> uh, th- those things are, which become such a part of his style in the 80s and, and uh 90s they're, they're not necessarily in those earlier books, and they're a little bit more stylistically uneven, but also, I think, a little bit more interesting. So if, if you were looking for what is the Stephen King book to, like, check out to see what's up that's a novel and not a short story collection, uh, I would just say read Carrie. Um, I yeah. think Carrie works extremely well. It's, like, kind of an epistolary novel, kind of like a, a novel that's stitched together, so there's all these, like... Uh, newspaper articles that are like about what happens with Carrie and and the interesting thing is that even if you've seen the film or even if you know what Carrie is about and it you know it might be the case that many people know I promise the book has stuff that is very interesting that you don't know about Um, and so it's worth digging into Salem's Lot his second novel is also really good for all of those different things and I think it's also worth reading but so I would say if you're if you know you're looking for the the sampler go with one of the short story collections if you're looking to see like what Stephen King up to as like a stylist and a writer especially in those formative times those first two books are um you know they knock it right out of the park and of course the shining as well also knocks it out of the park but it's a little bit longer a little bit more Mm -hmm. of a commitment um Adrian asks, um, and I will ask, I don't, let's not spoil it. You can talk around it. Um, cause I'm curious cause you're here. Also, hold on aside. Kato, now that we have a little more space, I can, yeah. I'd, I was going to mm-hmm. ask this question and then <laughs> I was rushing. Um, uh, do you, any thoughts on Steve? Like where, what is Kato and Stephen King? Where does, where do you, where do you land? I do not know this man. I remember seeing him write columns in the back of Entertainment Weekly in my childhood. That's all. Yes. That is the yes. only Stephen King I've ever encountered with. And I've been meaning to maybe check out. I don't. I I want to read more. And I just don't. 
have time. Yeah. Right audiobooks, now? man. Audio, I audiobooks. Know. I can't. Yeah, that's that's how my know. wife does. I have like too she, many podcasts already. That's the thing. Well, that's see, that's that's my that's my <laughs> like, problem. That's the real is issue. I listen um, to a shitload of podcasts, and so yes, like. I don't have time to like read, read, Um, even though I read a lot for my job, but it's like a different mode and kind of reading. Right. Um, But I listen to a podcast, but like my podcasts also function as a different form of media consumption, which is like, I listen to like, you know, politics or, or other things that I'm interested in and the mode in which I interact with them and learn about them is through podcasts. And so it's like, I don't want to give that part up (laughs) to to read, but like reading books is like far and away the thing that is just like, disappeared from my media diet um like as it was true when i was younger like like basically post high school i read a lot in high school and then after that like it just sort of uh got got away but that's but but that's not because you're uh i feel like you've said before like you're not uh you're okay with horror like as as a genre no yeah i would love to at some point like it seems interesting i mean i like the, the horror books that i did read as a child probably read too early i read fucking red dragon way too early because for some reason my mm. my library was super lax with that sort of stuff like i don't know if any library would have stopped <laughs> a like 12 year old from picking red, up red, red, red dragon. dragon well look but, at this kid he just wants to learn about dragons <laughs> <laughs> but like no like i love that that series of of horror books and it's just like that was that's literally i think it's the i think it was three is it three or maybe i'm misremembering but at least two the red dragon and sounds of the lambs uh are the the mm-hmm. horror books of my childhood um and just never got to stephen king you know, like know. in x file x files was my on-ramp to like oh, sci- like sci-fi mm-hmm. horror was my on-ramp to like horror horror it's like i went from x files to watching like you know like fire in the sky like a really fucking terrifying alien abduction film from 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 the 90s and then as i got older like that's how i started dipping into like 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 it was like x-files aliens gets me to like alien and like nice. that's you start yeah. to see like the trajectory of like where you know the monster a week part of x-files like i get introduced to a bunch of different like genres of yeah. of horror um and like that's where and that's how i like started getting into stephen king although the weird thing about me and stephen king is that I like the dark tower is where I started. Um, yeah, that's wow. that has always been astonishing to me about you. <laughs> that you're, like you're a horror person, but your connection yeah. to Stephen King for most of your life has been the dark tower. Yeah, only. and I, I don't have, I cannot, I cannot give you an explanation for why I picked it up. Like what, like mm-hmm. what I thought was like, yes, what I need to do is start like reading this. Well, I guess they weren't all out at the time. Um, like this, I think uh, they were up through. Uh, King was up through. Um, Probably five. Yeah, well, that was Wolves of the Kala, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was probably around then, because I think Wolves of the Kala on my shelf is the first one that I have that is like a hardcover. All the others mm. are um, much, much smaller, and I need to replace those at some point. Anyway, um, how do you feel about the, uh, Adrian asked, how do you uh, guys feel about the ending to the Dark Tower saga? I remember reading a few years back about how King regretted ending the series after his accident with the van and feels like he rushed them out too soon. How did you feel King ever decided to go back and rewrite the last two Dark Tower books? For a little context, for one, mm-hmm. when I will not spoil like the end end of Dark Tower. Like I, I will, I will mm-hmm. speak around it in case for some reason you're in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the context of what they're talking about there is like in in the uh, 90s or it was like 2000s. Uh, like Early King 2000s. gets in a yeah gets in a really serious car accident where he almost dies. Um, and well, oh, hold on, accident. Uh, sorry to jump in here. Sure, accident please. is uh, 
Maybe. I don't, I don't know if I like the word accident. The mm. man was hit by a van. He was yes, just walking sure. along okay. and uh-huh. a van ran into him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Accident implies, you know, he was in some At way fault or involved. a participant. <laughs> um, yeah, he was in a car crash, a really serious one. Put him in the hospital for a while. And he's, you know, he came out of that. Uh, you know, he considers the Dark Tower like his seven book series um, or became a seven book series. Uh, you know, he was worried that he wasn't going to finish it and he was going to fail all his fans because it was something he was kind of picking away at. Um, in, in a uh, over the course of his career, um, and that maybe he'd never get to finish it, and so he rushes out the last couple of books. And the general consensus, of which I agree with, is that there are a lot of good elements in those books, but they are mostly a fucking mess. And um, but I will say the one thing, uh, and I, I meant to reread them. I've wanted to go back. Uh, like I've read them twice, but I haven't like done it as an, an as an adult. Like I read those a lot in my teen in my teen years. Mm-hmm. Um, I I like where he ends it. I I like the actual end end of the series. Like the like I don't I don't um, in the vaguest terms um, the approach to the tower and how a certain villain is handled. Not don't particularly care for it. Pretty bad. But like the act for King, so famously and infamously mm-hmm. terrible at endings because the way he writes books is he doesn't do outlines. He just writes until the story is over, which is like. Such a good way of explaining why his endings suck shit because he doesn't think about them. The book is just done at a certain point. Um, and the Dark Tower is like one of the rare, like weirdly of a seven book opus, like one of my like a great masterwork, like something despite how messy it is in the second half is still my favorite book series of all time. I love where it ends. Like I closed the book and was like deliriously happy. And like that's how this, the story went out. Um, mm-hmm. Now, granted. Again, speaking vaguely, um, it's because <laughs> there's some openness to that ending that in some ways, as opposed to his other uh, uh, stories, he doesn't put a period on it. It's more of a comma. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of gets him out of it's a bit of an escape hatch if you want to be cynical. And I, I bought it. I, I really liked how how it ended and was um, so excited when they were going to do the Amazon Dark Tower TV series, Wizard of Glass, in which. True King fans will understand he was going to start the, the the series was going to start with him with the horn. And that only doesn't mean anything. That's not a spoiler like uh, that. Um, that would be well, cool. That's how the so, film was talked about. I mean, yes. King King says that the the Dark Tower film, which is uh, rough, we could we could bad. Say. Yes. Uh, uh, well, you know, when we do it, when we do it on just King things, you can come along, Patrick, and we'll Please, have you yeah. on the bonus episode yeah, I, for oh, that. I, to, the, to the one, I, I'm usually, if I, you I can do some, it physically, I, I can, I, I am someone <laughs> that, uh, is able to separate. I don't think adaptations good or bad, like mm-hmm. taint the original work. I'm a, I'm a big believer in like, I don't know, go make the thing you want to make. Um, that said, I've never been like more profoundly sad coming out of a film than probably seeing like halfway through the movie. My wife looks at me. She's like, do you want another beer? And I was like, I don't know that's going to make me feel better. Um, but we can stay and watch the end of this. I, I need eight more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, One yeah. won't do it. No. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a generally shared uh, shared opinion about that. But. Uh yeah, I mean we're gonna talk about it on the show. I don't want to preview my my okay. Too much, okay, I don't want to get spoilers for your pod. But but I will say uh, so you know go subscribe to Just King Things and we'll get there in mm-hmm. about four years. So <laughs> uh, you know, we're, it's in publication order and we got to get through oh the entirety of the eighties and nineties before. We're oh shit! Okay, about yeah. It. All right. Yeah, uh, oh, by the time. way, I looked it up. He was hit. He was hit uh, by the van in nineteen ninety nine. So right there. Uh, gotcha. 
Um, but but I will say I, I I'm in a similar boat to you, Patrick. I I think that it is more because I've reread those uh, all of the novels actually right before we started. Uh, just King thinks the show. I just happened. Stephen King was on my mind. I think, and that's kind of why we did the show. And uh, I I don't think it ends um, too too bad um i think what's going to be really interesting and if you if uh, you know listening to michael Lutz and i talk about all of stephen king and publication order sounds interesting to you you really should go jump into the show now because we're about to start we've already done the gunslinger and mm. um uh drawing to the three his second book in the dark tower series oh. it's going to be pretty soon it's going to be within the next few months and then in that middle part, you know, part of the interesting thing is that he really develops out like the Stephen King shared universe, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. before this point, there's a lot of references to like similar geography, but the Dark Tower starts to become this like text that everything runs into and there become whole novels like Insomnia that are just like lore dumps for the Dark Tower well, and, that, and, that, and that were adapted into films and just ripped all of that out. <laughs> Is is the oh no that's Hearts of Atlantis that's Hearts of Atlantis, Atlantis. yeah yeah yes. I was about yes. to say I don't think the word I don't think the the um, Christopher Nolan film Insomnia is no, no 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 maybe was, I was thinking of but uh, that are, you but know yes. I mean that happens to a lot of the adaptations they just strip yes. out unless you're Mike Flanagan you strip out all references to quartets and numbers yes. and uh, and things of that nature. Um, but, but that's all to say. So we're going to kind of go through all that. And this weird thing happens where Stephen King writes those last three books. And I don't think it's just a spoiler to say that all of that other additional information is just, he also jettisons it. He's like, why would, why do I give a shit about what I said in 1988? Like, who cares? Like <laughs> eyes of the dragon. Ugh, I guess I'll talk about that kid, uh, you know, Thomas or whatever his name is. It is so funny to me how much Stephen King has that accident and like gets into this panic mode that you were talking about of like, Oh, I got to finish it and then he's like yeah i don't know if i care about all of it <laughs> <laughs> what does it uh, mean so, to finish it exactly exactly <laughs> uh and you know so he's like you know ends up getting kind of buried under his own work there in a, in a way that's a little bit of a bummer but that's all to say i think it has an appropriate ending i, I wasn't super pissed off about it and the character payoffs that happened in that last book are really really good yeah they are um, yeah he, so. he hits he, like yeah the hits enough high notes that it, it makes you uh forget about like the Harry Potter references and Wolves of the Kala yeah. and oh, other I've read things the, that <laughs> yeah recently when I read like um five and six I was like this is abysmal like this is some yeah. of the worst like I can't believe I'm suffering through it. and I got to book seven I was like oh yeah all right yeah you, you yeah. know what's up you know how to yeah. write a book Hell six, yeah. six, six is a song of Susanna right um yeah it's, it's, it's like a, a big spider or something I don't know I've like purged like you, mm-hmm. you like you could probably condense those three books into one decent like conclusion to the saga if you excise uh a lot of it but uh yeah so i, I yes uh, adrian and i i generally like where it ends even if the path to getting there is is rough and yet he has said that if he had more time he would just straight up rewrite like the series uh, but i think he's also realized he's <laughs> as fast as he is a writer he is mortal and probably maybe it's not uh is not going to go around to doing that and i think he's always looked to the if there was an, a proper adaptation because he's very involved in like yeah. the adaptations he chooses to be involved in. And I think he's always looked at, well, if somehow eventually the Dark Tower got made, mm-hmm. that would be like the series is built in a way that you could do something to quote unquote fix things without actually messing with the things that people liked originally, which is actually one of the kind of like special things about the yeah. like the structure of the story of the, of the Dark Tower. And so I don't know if that'll ever happen. I just think it's like the Dark Tower is too tonally weird and if it's not going to get made now when there's just they're just throwing billions of dollars at any both any Stephen King idea 
and just like any property that's an IP, like Dark Tower is just so strange. And I just don't, I just don't know if it's not going to happen now. I just can't imagine it's ever going yeah. to happen. Well, because um, each book is in a different genre. How yeah. do you, how, how do you, or not every book, but most of them. And it's like, it, it's going to be very hard to sell someone on like, here's season one. It's a low powered Western. Here's season two. There's doors that teleport you anywhere in time and space. Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> season three, evil train in a giant, yes. in a giant, you know, science fiction city, right? Like it's a pretty hard sell to to like connect it all up. And I mean, well, I, I thought they had the right idea with starting with the the the, the fourth book at for like the Amazon mm-hmm. series of like, look, start with like Roland, the past establish that and then get weird once people like the characters like i think there was a world where you could have you could have like flipped the chronology of the series and publication order to tell a story that gets you to the gunslinger um and all the weirdness that goes with it where it's like well i don't really care i don't give a shit where the the, the tonal and genre shifts happen because i'm invested in these characters at this point and like what's going to happen so i actually thought that was like a smart structural shift but um I also that, just the the one note too of like Stephen King rewriting these things. Uh, that would be the ultimate nightmare scenario, and I know people like want that, but <laughs> no, Stephen King don't. has you spent don't. the majority of the last ten years writing crime novels, and that are like fine, but like not a, you know shockingly astounding or anything like that. And also the rewriting that he did on the Gunslinger, like. It, it, the it's not good. It's bad. It it changes like significant parts of. Roland is a character in the original novel for the gunslinger. Roland guns down an entire town and like has no emotions about it. And that really sets a lot of standards about like, who is this man who's carrying the world on his back? You know, he's, he's a gun. He's a gun with a little bit of a human heart. And Stephen King over the course of the dark tower turns him into like a man with a heart of gold. And that is the ultimate betrayal to me of the really interesting part of it, which is that, that this is an amoral human being who will do anything to get his goal. And Stephen King doesn't have the heart to, to play that out. And that's a little bit of a bummer. And I would hate to see him rewrite the whole thing to bring that in line because it would be saccharine. It would not yeah. be. Well, and well, he was a much darker writer when he wrote uh, the gunslinger. Um, yeah, it was on co- right? He was doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs> well, <laughs> like not, an, an not even just the drugs. Like, like, the, the, like that's like the first book he wrote, like out of college. Or he wrote the gunslinger in college, if I remember. Uh, the gunslinger is a what, what's called a, uh, a fix em up. So it is a combination. It's an edited together collection of several short stories that are written over a big period gotcha. of time. Yep. Um, but yeah, like that period of his life when he's around, like if you go read a lot of the work that he was doing around that time. Um, yeah. He's a much more. <laughs> there's a reason that he had to have an alter ego for like his even more cynical, uh, darker works. Um, all right, let's do. We'll do one more uh, uh, King question. Uh, oh, we'll tie it into video games. Um, <laughs> Graham asked. This came in a bunch of times in different forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a surprising little in the way of Stephen King video games. What's the book or movie or '90s television miniseries? Because mm. that. There's a lot of those uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in the King canon um, that really should have been turned into a game by now. And what kind of game? The Mist movie seems like a natural first person survival horror. But what about a Cujo branded Nintendogs clone or <laughs> an Oregon trail about trekking through post-apocalyptic America to Colorado or Vegas in the stand? Um, there are there's like pretty much like I um, there was a period where uh I was researching a bunch of the King video games for, for something. And there's just not, there's like a handful. Like he put mm-hmm. his name to like a really bad, uh, like CG collection of mini games in, yeah. in the nineties, uh, that I forget the name of. Um, 
and there's like a hand there's a point and click adventure for the dark half uh which i think is like the one half yeah. decent a video game from what i read about but for whatever reason um there's a, the fact video, that, there's a uh platformer or, or like a um like a bionic commando kind of game uh for um the running man film <laughs> uh, and there's actually a, a video game for the mist there's a parser based text right. adventure game for the mist. right mm-hmm. um, um so i don't know I, I it's it's interesting uh i mean i you know i think Something like tell, like Telltale would have made a lot of like something in that structure. I think adventure games like like seem to make a lot of sense for like what you could extract a lot of like what people really like from a Stephen King story. Um, I definitely you, you could see um, you know Telltale in their heyday having adapted even some version of it uh, or 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 Salem's Lot where you're like exploring a town. You have a lot of characters you can interact with. Uh, Pennywise will remember this um, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's 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 weird because I don't. I, uh, he has no cultural weight in the video game space whatsoever. I don't know if that would change if someone cared, because um, it's like the opposite in all other forms of media where, like, almost, this was certainly true. Like post it, um, like the, the most recent like film, which is like anything he has written or has you know will write will just get adapted. Um, but uh, I don't know. Do yeah, as, for, as someone that has spent a lot of time thinking about video games, thinking about Stephen King. Is there something, is this just like a weird, uh, sort of just like it just never happened and like there's an alternate reality where there's tons of King video games? Or do you think there's something about his writing, like his books, that just don't lend themselves to the medium whatsoever? I think it's got to be Stephen King partially himself. I I don't think it has anything to do with like what, you know, uh, adaptability, you know, like you were talking about before. Because uh, all the most successful Stephen King uh, adaptations have ripped out like what we would call Stephen King's like stylistic voice <laughs> and just like taking the, the Wikipedia summary and like blown yes. that out into a full yes. thing. Right. Well, cause um, his, his writing style is interiority and it's like, whoops, what are movies <laughs> really bad at interiority? Yeah. So, uh, better have a cool villain than we can, that we can put up here. Yes. And, and that's what we talk about too, you know, quite often on the show is if you look at the Stephen King approved, uh, you know, adaptations or whatever. So if you look at the Mick Garris directed, um, miniseries, right. They are, they're interesting movies for the most part, or they're interesting, like, you know, long form films, but the way that people speak in the real world and the way that people speak in Stephen King books are very different. Mm -hmm. And when Stephen King has a lot of control, the people in those shows end up speaking like Stephen King characters. Yes. And so there's a very famous moment in the, uh, in the shining miniseries where, uh, the guy who's playing, um, uh, Jack Torrance says, play some damn bebop. (laughs) <laughs> like talking to the hotel and and in the commentary i listened to stephen king is doing the commentary he's like he's like this is why this actor is so good this is why he's so amazing is he could sell that line and like no one in the universe would be able to say steve this line sucks like this is not a good phrase it doesn't make any sense here no one would say this out loud but so his like imaginary for like the way human beings interact with the world is just very different um, uh, than the way that people talk in movies or in real life. Well, that's what, that's what makes, makes Mike Flanagan such an interesting filmmaker because he seems to be, there's been lots of successful or interesting mm-hmm. or scary adaptations of King's work, but I find the ones that Flanagan has been involved with, whether it's Gerald's Game or Dr. Sleep, and Dr. Sleep is a fucking trash book. Like, it's just just complete garbage from from top to bottom. And it's like one of my favorite horror films. Like, like Flanagan f- has found a way and i think he, you see it in his original work as well like haunting mm-hmm. hill house or his new midnight mass which i think is really strong as well like flanagan seems to also understand that like that character work but 
has found a way to have King-like characters that don't sound like King characters on the page, but definitely gets at the same thing that the King scratches at in his writing. Um, yeah. Um, are, are, are you not a? Do you, you don't like Flanagan? I think I think he's fine. I like I don't I I don't get the kind of I don't think that he is a better director than the other people who have been, and I don't think his adaptations are necessarily better than the other people who have adapted Stephen King. I don't I don't think that his his adaptations don't do more for me than say mm. the Mick Garris adaptations. Wow, um, and that's damn. because I just like don't like watching it. I th- <laughs> they sound like Stephen King characters to me. Those do not sound like real kids. <laughs> They're like all saying like these weird 1950s phrases that Stephen King puts in the mouth of every child no matter when it happens um and uh yeah i just like i think those movies are well made and i think that you know uh flanagan has um a good i think he's a great horror stylist yeah but i don't think that he is elevating stephen king beyond like what the source material is i think he's just really good at choosing you know great projects and and is really this is the difference this is what what i will say um flanagan seems to have a very good sense for casting and even mm-hmm. when the characters are kind of shallow 2D ish uh, Stephen King characters, the actors who embody them are very good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the it I didn't really particularly care for like it chapter two, but the 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 way that the characters are involved in there too. Um so anyway. Um, um you know, I, I think that when you make good Stephen King contemporary stuff, it's about finding actors who kind of speak to that stuff, no matter mm-hmm. who is doing it. <laughs> I think that's true. Um all right. Well, that is that is all. That is that is the end of our uh, King things. Uh, Waypoint uh, <laughs> Stephen King's uh, uh, mailbag. Um, Cam, it's been a, it's been a delight to to have you on. We I, basically this entire mailbag has been a long uh, promotional opportunity for <laughs> your podcast. But yeah, of course. Where where else can people? What else have you got going? Obviously, you wrote you know wrote up uh, you know Sable for us over here at Waypoint. You're you're mm-hmm. writing every couple of weeks for us pretty much at this point. Mm-hmm. So you can see a lot of your writing on games here, but um, where, where, where should people point you more generally if they want to see more of what you're up to? You, you can go to twitter.com slash C Kunzelman. Uh, that's probably where you're going to find the most stuff. Uh, and of course, rangedtouch.com or twitter.com slash rangedtouch. Um, you can see all kinds of like, you know, opinions that, that I have over for just King things, which is part of the range touch network this month. We are doing what we talked about a little bit earlier, Patrick, but we did, um, uh, different seasons, uh, that episode's going to be coming out in like a week and a half or something like that. A completely is, different mode of, of writing. Cause those are yeah. like four basically novellas like slapped yeah. together. Um, as, <laughs> yes. as a book. slap slapped is the appropriate term. <laughs> I think absolutely. Uh, so yeah, but, but fa- very famously, right. So, yes. uh, Shawshank Redemption is in there. Um, the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, the body, which gets turned into stand by me apt people, which is turned into a film. And yeah, then, all, like the incredible that like these like ah, um, you know these like side stories for Stephen King. I don't know. I guess I'll just mash these together. And then if you like, once you name those out, there's like those are all like pop culture institution like films. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. And so, um, so the it, it, so we have a really cool episode where we're kind of digging into that. Um, and uh, the bonus episode. So if you if you back us on Patreon, um, you, the bonus episode will be talking about Stand by Me with a very special guest. Uh, we occasionally have big guests who come to talk about movies with us, and uh, it it is someone you are going to want to hear talk about it. 
Um, it is not Rob Reiner, but <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is, uh, someone we're very excited to have. We, I don't want to spoil it yet. But, you had, you uh, had Mick Garris actually come on, right? No, have you been, have you been petitioning for Mick Garris to come on? I've, I can't yes. remember where this, so I I've seen a petition tweeting. for Mick Garris. I've seen a petition yes. for Elijah Wood. Yes. Um, I need you to help me out on this one, Patrick. Okay. Well, okay. the Waypoint audience can help you. We can. Okay. Waypoint audience. This is what you need you to do. I need you to, to tweet at Mick <laughs> Garris, the, the director of many horror films. Such as Sleepwalkers or great uh, film, great, amazing film, like incredible. Go watch Sleepwalkers. Don't look anything up. Just Just start watching it and get back to me. (laughs) So that's the thing is that he is legitimately one of the most interesting horror film. Absolutely. Of the past 40 years. No question. I put him up there with like John Carpenter, you know, in my mind, Uh, you know, he's you look at his filmography and then. Yeah, it's yeah. He mean people don't know his name, but. Like, uh, yeah, the outsized influence he has had yes. with the projects he's been involved with is is up there with the Carpenters. I can't of, remember of if he directed it, but he wrote Hocus Pocus. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, right. You know, like he's in there. You know, you know his work. Um, but uh, so anyway, we've been trying to get Mick Garris for a long time. And occasionally I'll tweet at Mick Garris. I'll say, Mick, we really want you on the show. Please get at me. <laughs> And he will fave, or whoever runs his social media account will fave the tweet. And I will respond to that and say, hey, Mick, I know you're seeing this tweet. I need you to get uh, contact me. And I've contacted him through every possible mode. I'm being stonewalled by someone in this process. Damn. So if uh, if you're Mick Garris's booking agent and you listen to Waypoint Radio, please <laughs> uh, get in, con- in contact with me. Also, we're trying to get Elijah Wood quite often. Um, I've, I've made more progress on that than Mick Garris, weirdly enough. <laughs> but uh, but that's, well, I think that's Elijah Wood is pretty in, in touch with uh, plays a lot of games, like yes. builds horror movie. You know, has a horror. Uh, a production company yeah. himself was was in a very interesting remake of Maniac a number mm-hmm. of years ago. Um, what's the movie? Uh, Come to Daddy, which was he was in a year ago, two years ago. Oh my god! Like what a he's great in that movie, and it's mm-hmm. a great and weird movie. Elijah Wood is yeah is delightful. Yeah, I want to talk about this stuff with Elijah Wood. So if you if you want to like throw in another tweet to Elijah Wood while you're doing this waypoint audience, just throw another great. tweet into the fire. You know, yeah, like just we're just like, trying to keep the fire burning here um, yeah. to get these guests on 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 your pad on your podcast. Yeah, exactly. Because we want to talk to the, I want I want to talk to McGarris for hours about just you know all the different things he's done. I, I got his biography recently. I'm ready to go. Like I'm, I'm ready to make it happen. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so we do that, and then we so in that show, Just King Things is just is free. Anyone can check it out, and then behind the Patreon while we talk about movies and so we talk about things like you know mike flanagan or mick garris or the i'm blanking on the director who did it chapters one and two why am i blanking on that oh uh mish moody uh, that's the uh <laughs> what he's directing the flash movie now um, oh really uh yeah uh well i wish uh damn it i'm just if i search it director i just get it uh director uh, yes i have also done this literally live on the podcast before i've been like you know it i, I, I think i said it i did it date and it was like it date and it was like no because we uh, Mus- when it came Muschietti, um is yeah. the director of um yeah. one one and one and two one part one i don't know that it's an all-timer but it's a it's a it's a good time part mm-hmm. two is some of the most disappointing three hours I've spent <laughs> watching a, a film like King mm-hmm. King or not. That that's the part two is a great cast, just completely, completely <laughs> wasted. 
Well, if you want to hear us talk at length, Michael Lutz and I talk, uh, you know, at length. And Michael Lutz, if, if you're not familiar with it, uh, also uh, an academic like I am, but also a horror game creator, made my father's long, long legs and the uncle, uncle who works at Nintendo and probably a few other things that you might be familiar with if you're a video games person. So Michael is in the horror genre, you know, kind of kind of like you are, Patrick. Um, and so, you know, we talk about filmmaking and we talk about the ways that those work. I've got a PhD in moving image studies. So, so we got a lot of cool stuff to pull on from both of us. And we talk about like different filmmaking styles and how you adapt Stephen King and like close reading scenes and how you like, uh, we found a really great moment of the director of Cujo close reading his own scene to talk about like, how do you break down the anatomy of a jump scare, you know, <laughs> before the jump scare is like solidified and so, right. uh, you know, it's the eighties and, uh, you know, jaws is one of the places where jump scares existed before that. So, or, you know, so anyway, it's, it's a place where we kind of really get into it for the normal shows. We're talking about the books, but if you want to hear us talk about media at length, uh, it's a thing that, you know, uh, it, uh, benefits me financially to say I recommend, but, I recommend. <laughs> I, I do. Have you done um, Maximum Overdrive? Yet? Yes, we have. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to make a pilgrimage to Wilmington, North Carolina, at some point in the next twelve months. Have you? Uh, you've heard, have you heard the the David Lynch theory about that film? Yes. Um, uh, on yeah. the episode, I go deep into the, why I think that is absolute nonsense. I think it's nonsense too, but because it's, it fundamentally misunderstands how movies are made on like yes. a basic level. But, but the, the short version of this is is that Maximum Overdrive is the one movie Stephen King's written uh, a handful of adaptations of his own work, including mm-hmm. like the recent bad uh, Apple TV Plus show uh, that. Uh, was it Lizzie's story? I think I, I, oh, I didn't get around to yeah, watching Lizzie's story. Yeah, Lizzie's story because the reviews were so abysmal. Um, uh, and Sleepwalkers is the only c- cinematic cinema on- movie movie only script. There's no book. There's no short story um, that he's ever written. And then Maximum Overdrive is an adaptation of a short story, but it's the only the movie that he's directed. He's mm-hmm. since said he does not remember <laughs> directing most of it, which is a common theme of when you know he was abusing a lot of drugs and alcohol during a, a period of his work. Um, yep. But uh, what a great, a tr- tremendous movie. It's a movie like, what if trucks came alive and killed you? And it's like, sure, why not? And it's just mm, uh, delightful. Anyway, the, the theory yeah. is there's, the movie is really poorly directed. Shocking. Um, like it's, it's a really bad film, uh, but it's really not good. Agree, but, but I will go along with this for <laughs> the purposes wow. of the, the smoothness here. But uh-huh, 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 I want to uh-huh. lodge my, my disagreement. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a sequence in which uh, about like, I don't know, a third into the film, like there's this kid walking uh, through the neighborhood. Um, and this is after um, the the machines have been activated. And there you're, you have these little sequences where you, you like see how the uh, like a like a hair dryer or like a I don't know, like a water hose and other things like mm-hmm. have done grotesque things to the people in this neighborhood. And it's just exqui- like it's exquisitely shot. Like it's as general mm-hmm. like genuine tension. It's scary and weird. And if you just were to watch that scene, like you just gave someone that scene, you're like, like, do you know Stephen King ever directed a film? Look at this <laughs> sequence. You look at that and go, holy, holy shit. I gotta yes. go see this movie. Yes. Um, and you should still do that. That should still be your reaction. Um, but it just it feels qualitatively out of place with a lot of the other film in terms of like the quality of direction. Um yeah. and there has been a, a long running theory that Lynch, who I think shared a producer with uh, yeah. Overdrive. Um, he was sh- uh, shooting Blue Velvet, I think, at yep. the time. Yep. Um, in the area. So he came over to the set of Maximum Overdrive and 
the theory is that he was there during that, like them shooting that scene, and he shot that. Like he just showed up and was like, "Oh, here, give me the yeah. camera." And <laughs> this is so often repeated, which like really is very frustrating to me. And here's why: this is why it's frustrating me. I know mm. that we're going long, but I, I got to get my no, don't like yeah, I, you're the one look, with the heart I, out or was so, like you his know. heart. Your heart out disappeared. Rob is not here. <laughs> I, I'm running the show, baby. Like we're turning this into a mini king thing. Right. Like I'm fine with it. So this is why. This is why this is very frustrating. I think mm. Michael. I I think I'm sharing. Uh, you know what Michael and I both believe here, but you know if he, he if he is not in agreement, he will let us right in, uh, right in Michael uh, <laughs> t- to uh, the show tri- triangular to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is why it's because it reinforces a lot of our like consumptive habits around movies that say that directors do all the work. Right. Um, and everything that we know about Maximum Overdrive is that Stephen King was doing a lot of drugs at the time. He had never directed a film before. And there is actually a really interesting conversation that David Lynch reports having had with Stephen King, where Stephen King asks him, like, yes, you could just shoot things from whatever angle. And as long as you got the shot, you got it. And (laughs) David Lynch was like, yeah, you could do that. But like, it doesn't cut together. Like, you can't make continuity out of that, but you can do it. So like Stephen King didn't know what he was doing. And Stephen King had spent a huge chunk of the, the previous like two or three years spending time on movie sets because he wanted to direct film. So he was heavily involved in Creepshow, the George Romero film that yes. George Romero directed from Stephen King's script, heavily involved in that and was trying to be on set and doing pre-production and everything because he wanted to learn the 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 kind of skills there he he did not learn the skills uh, but like you know long story short um, but but this is the thing the reason that that looks so good is that the director of photography which in a, in a on a film set or in a film production the director of the photography is often the person who is making the choices about where does a camera go how do you light a scene that kind of thing um, wait question question student in in, mm-hmm. in, in the classroom sure. how is that or is that not different than a cinematographer same thing. Um, okay. uh, director of photography is uh, uh, the director of photography is the term that was used in the UK originally that it is the equivalent to cinematographer. They're used interchangeably gotcha. at this okay. point. Noted. Um, but so that is a guy named Armando Nanucci. Um, Armando Nanucci was the uh, 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 director of photography for Visconti. Uh, 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 Visconti, uh, very famous kind of European art cinema uh, creator. Uh, on the Damned in 1969. Okay, uh, he was the cinematographer for Waterloo in 1970. So oh. he he is a well vetted <laughs> credentials <laughs> credentialed art cinematic cinematographer who came to the U.S. probably to make more money. Uh, yeah. Just to be frank, and in 1985 did Silver Bullet, which is also Stephen King. I production. love Silver Bullet. Right? Great film. Yeah, and that's got a uh, uh, Feldman in it, right? It's got Corey Feldman. Yes, I think. yes, yes. Um, and and then went on to do Maximum Overdrive, and then kind of took a long break from cinema for a long time. <laughs> he did um, Maximum Overdrive and said, "Actually, well, I'm good." Yes, because he lost an eye during the production. Oh no! During the production of of Maximum Overdrive, he was injured and lost sight in one eye, and that like sued the production like for millions be- of dollars. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean to belittle a, a, a serious injury, but it seems like that would like profoundly impact your ability to like do your job of a cinematographer, or director of yeah, photography. Yeah, stereoscopic vision is important for like depth and things like that, right? <laughs> so, so that's the thing is like I, I totally like it's a fun like legend, and you know, all the time you want to print the legend. Like David Lynch came and did it, but the David Lynch directed part of Maximum Overdrive 
ignores the much more interesting thing, which is that an important art cinema guy <laughs> came and was involved and shot everything in maximum overdrive. That's like, that's a much better story. Yeah, like, when you that's, see a guy get hit by a, a semi truck, this guy who was involved in one of the most important art cinematic pieces about like, you know, uh, uh, the fall of the Nazi party. That's what the, the damned is about, mm-hmm. about like the cravenness of the Nazis is really important film. Um, it, it's apocalyptic in tone. It was really heavily influential. He did that. And then he was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to get the Green Goblin truck and I'm going to make it just <laughs> make Emilio Estevez scared as hell. I'm going to shoot a kid. I'm going uh, yeah, to go. I'm going to shoot this kid's baseball field and when they're done playing that baseball game this soda machine is gonna shoot cans at the kids really hard distressingly hard yes it's great um but but that that's so much more interesting to me than like this you're right you're you're right you're right we we but we arrived at the interesting story like that is that is absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. the, this alongside stephen king does not remember writing cujo or like the big <laughs> myths we are trying to get rid of at just mm-hmm. king things mm-hmm. stephen king absolutely remembers writing cujo he talked he told the paris review about all the pre-production work that he did and like research he did for cujo he might not remember the weekend that he was banging that thing out but he remembers <laughs> writing cujo. Um, that, that is a uh but again it's this moment and stephen king is so canny about this a print the legend right like yeah what's more interesting stephen king doesn't remember writing a whole novel or stephen king was drunk for, or or high for big chunks of a novel mm, that's not as interesting well if he wanted to refute anything uh and he has a very active problematic twitter account that you can <laughs> that you can engage with if uh, you'd like. yeah middle of the road steve uh yep uh yeah yes 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 uh uh hashtag resistance steve uh yes. is out yes. there uh fighting some version of the fight uh out yes. there on, on in, social media in our discord we have had to institute a rule that you cannot post stephen king's tweets <laughs> because they're because they're every day it's something they're just nonsense equally goofy or nonsensical or just like politically naive yes and you're just like steve come on uh, he very famously so uh in uh He's only pulled one work from publication, and that's the novel, the novella Rage, which is about right. school shooting. And right. he wrote an essay called Guns, and which we've talked about on the show. When we I kind of refuse to read it. I feel like it's probably bad. It's bad. It's not good. Yeah. Uh, and so you can skip it. And that's what we say in the episode. But he wrote this essay where he explains it. And in the essay, he's like, I just think that every American should, uh, you know, every liberal, every Democrat, he says Democrat, every Democrat should be forced to watch 30 minutes of... Um, uh, Fox News a day, and every Republican should be forced to watch 30 minutes of CNN, and that would fix all the problems. And you're like, Steve, come on. Like, And obviously, this is the early 2000s. Like, I don't know if he's that politically naive anymore, but he that's him, right? He's like centrist Steve. Uh, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if he's in the same place, but I don't think he's far from it. I think he's no. just older. <laughs> yes, yes, I think so. Uh, so. Uh, all right, well, uh, Kato, um, where can people follow you? On, oh yeah, that was during the closing was, up of the yeah. plug bag. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. No, that was long great. Oh, My bad. Good. Sorry, Kyle. We're the world of tangents. No, you're good. Uh, at a underscore Kyle underscore appears. <laughs> um, uh, you can follow me uh, at Patrick Klubek. You can uh, keep up with everything at Waypoint uh, by going to waypoint.vice.com. Follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Facebook, and YouTube at Waypoint Vice. Um, the theme music of Radio is by Bo M. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. You can learn more at waypoint.zone slash 
Bowen. Um, that is going to do it for us this week. Um, see, this comes out on a Friday. It'll be too late. I don't know what the. I guess Rob's back, right? So he might be back to do a stream with yeah. you, Kato. We're going to stream. Um, so We're going to keep playing Orcs Must Die 3, I think. Oh, oh yeah. good. Yeah. Hell yeah. We had a lot of fun and, doing that the other week for Tactical Tuesdays. Now it's going to be Tactical Friday, I guess. Oh, so, oh this is just uh, the tactics well, only. Know, after, yeah, we, after our Tuesday Tactical Golf Off, it was uh, you know, time to get back to some real tactics, I guess. Some third-person yeah. uh, tower defense tactics. Que- <laughs> question for the audience: how do how do we play the satellite view? Yeah. Original version of oh uh, Kirby's Dream Course, which was so Kirby's Dream Course, you know, uh, Kirby golf game for the the Super Nintendo uh, was originally uh, a like w- a different game released only on this satellite download service for the Super Nintendo in Japan, where I guess the Super Famicom, where you would I believe the way it worked was you would you had this, this rewritable cart that you took to a kiosk. And you would pick the game you wanted and it would download that game and write it to the cartridge. Um, and that's where Kirby's Dream Course comes from is mm-hmm. a, a game with different characters, different layouts, different powers. I showed a video of it to Kato. How do we stream? How do we stream? How do we have plausible deniability? Like, how, mm-hmm. hmm. okay. can well, I, can first I go back to 1991? Yeah. Oh, I need like, well, that or it's like, can I find someone to put it on a cart for me? Yeah. And then I'll just like I'll photograph that and send that to a lawyer. Like, look, we have it's it. on a cart. We own um, it. Actually, if somebody wants to go ahead and also send a Famicom to me, I can, I got a capture card. I can true. figure that out. We'll send it just back. To, yeah. We'll, it can we'll, just be yeah, a loaner. Just, a little, um, just borrow it from Frank Cifaldi. <laughs> yeah. Where, where you at? Like, send, send us a bunch of stuff so we can pull this, this off. Cause I really so, uh, want ask to. The, uh, ask the Video Game History Foundation. That's yeah. true. That's just true. Just we'll just we'll do a, a, cr- yeah. a cross promotion. Um, yeah. I bet they would do that. Exactly. Shout, shout out um, to the Video Game History Foundation. I, I'm a big supporter. I think what they're doing is awesome. Um, and we will have uh, a very special announcement next week. Some very exciting stuff going on at, at Waypoint uh, in terms of where we're going in the future. Um, you know, we've had a lot of fun uh, voices and new writers uh, coming through in the last couple of weeks as part of where we are going uh, with Waypoint down the line. And one of several things we're working on uh you'll be to hear about next week so stay tuned uh for that and uh i'm real excited uh for everyone to find out so that's to do it for us uh fuck capitalism go home When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Give me actually one minute to grab some water. I'll be right back.
Sure. Gotta go put out a fire. <laughs> yeah, get some. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. I'm gonna defend my position on oven safe oven plastic. Safe. <laughs> some plastic is oven safe. Change my mind. <laughs> and, and, and then a toaster oven appears. Yeah, that's the, the. I'm blaming the toaster oven. It's all the toaster uh-huh. oven's fault. Mm-hmm. So I very quickly uh, threw together a sandwich instead, and I'm gonna partially eat. Well, that makes it all the funnier. Your lunch was also ruined. Tremendous. Yeah, no, yeah, it was. Tremendous. You know, there was melted plastic in the fucking oh, that's chicken tikka. Delightful. <laughs> yeah, it smelled yeah, too bad. It smelled bad. It wasn't. It wasn't mm. a good time. I couldn't. I was just like, oh, well, that's gonna toss that out. <laughs> okay. Um. Uh, all right. Well, let's go to oven dot is, um, and we will clap. I don't often, I don't often regret not having a microwave, but this was one of those times where I, I thought it would have been safe in a microwave. It would have been fine. Mm, mm. <laughs> Uh, Cam, what were you gonna say? Sorry, you were the the other day. I did a uh, we we did a, a podcast recording with someone for Just King Things, and they let us know about Time.gov. Excuse me, which which is the government's version of Time.is, or actually Time.is is a private version of the government's Time.gov. Oh my god, I know you're paying tax money for Time.gov, and you're not even using it. <laughs> I hate this. I hate knowing this. Think about it. I know. I told Austin. He was like, oh, my God. What? (laughs) National Institute of Standards and Technology. Yeah. But it doesn't have the day. What day is it? I don't know what day it is. You don't need that. Uh, Uh, All right. Everyone recording? I am recording and ready to clap. Then how would I know it's International Translation Day? It's also International Podcast Day. Huh. You can only pick one. <laughs> Can't have two. I'll take podcasts. Tran- you can put the translations in the podcast. That's, That's easy. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Boom, boom. It's an accessibility feature of podcasts. Yeah. Um, all right, Kato, are you recording? Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's do 30. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You're good. Your sandwich is good. Yeah, I got a mortadella, fresh mortadella from the butcher. It's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So just t- just take it out of your hands, basically. Let's, <laughs> let's, let someone else prep this lunch. Um. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, let's get going.